Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Canadian Armed Forces veteran and host of The Collective, Chance Burles. So we discuss a host of topics from his childhood and journey into the military, the power of equine therapy, his road into podcasting, jujitsu, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chance Burles. Enjoy. Well, Chance, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. It's absolutely my pleasure. Seriously, I've been uh, I've been listening to you for quite a while, and you've had a bunch of my friends on, so it's uh, it's I'm I'm honored to be on here, man. I appreciate it. Well, I was also honored to be on your show, The Collective, on YouTube. So I want to thank you for those invitations as well. Like I said, you got an open seat, man. Any day you want to show up, if you're not uh, too busy running around the world, <laughs> then, uh, you're welcome anytime on The Collective. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, for people people listening, my morning has been uh, somewhat of a shit show um, and having to travel internationally now. So Chance has been very, very patient as far as uh, the beginning of this podcast. So, all right, well then jumping in, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I am in uh, Sherwood Park, Alberta, which is just outside Edmonton. And that's up in Canada for those that uh, that don't know. <laughs> but I, uh, I'm, I'm an Alberta boy. I've been born and raised kind of all over all over Alberta. I've been up north, I've been down south, I've been left and right, you name it, been all over the place. Well, let's start there then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. <laughs> so it's uh, it gets interesting here. So I'm, I was born in Calgary uh, in Alberta. Uh, my mom had many jobs. She's basically, picture like a hippie, like your quintessential version of a hippie. That's my mom. <laughs> and uh, my dad is actually a, uh, he grew up on a ranch down in Southern Alberta, but he is a musician, mechanic, um, you name it kind of thing. He can, if it's got strings on it, he can play it. And if it's got bolts, he can fix it. So he's kind of jack of all trades thing. Um, they, <clears throat> they divorced when I was three. And uh, so I got a little bit of time with my dad, but not a whole lot. And uh, I started, we went, my siblings and I went with my mother um, and off into the races. I'll tell you the rest of the story there. I do have a, a brother, an older brother and an older sister. So I'm the youngest of three. And uh, I got a, a half brother as well from on my dad's side. But that's, uh, that's about it. We didn't spend a whole lot of time with him. So <laughs> in terms of family wise, like we didn't do a whole lot. My mom did many, many different jobs. She was a... Uh, Posty for a little while. She's run her own businesses for 
two, three, four, I think four or five different businesses on our own <laughs> over the span of time. Um, but we moved around a lot too. So we were continually renting houses and stuff like that. So we would, uh, you know, we were in Lethbridge for a while. We were in uh, Claire's home for a little while. We were in uh, Calgary for a little while. Like, and we would kind of jump around. I realized that uh, before I joined the army, I had moved, I think seven or eight times just as a family jumping from house to house. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting. I grew up kind of half on the ranch because I would go out to um, hang out with my uncle on the ranch down yeah, just north of Pinter Creek for every little while, like uh, for a summer here and a summer there and hang out and go help out, do branding and go shoot gophers and, you know, live the ranch life for a little bit. And, uh, and you know, I just kind of made my way through that. I tried to get into sports. I was really good at running. You know, I I, I could just... Uh, I could do whatever, but I spent a lot of time on, on our own, the three of us, the, uh, my brother, my sister and I, because my parents were always working, you know, this was the the nineties and the eighties and nineties, right? When you just, your kids stayed at home and that was the way it was. So we did a lot of stuff out in the country, um, in the city, in small towns, just kind of running the neighborhood and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I got scars all over my body from <laughs> dumb things that I did. Uh, in order to have fun, seek stuff out. And, uh, it was, it was an interesting, interesting pastime. It started to cause some issues later on in life that I started to realize in the last, you know, two, three, two, three years, but, uh, it was good. We actually lived in one spot, uh, called Wilson siding and it was nine kilometers outside of Lethbridge. So Lethbridge is not a big town <laughs> for those that are listening. It is a small city in southern alberta and we were way out in the countryside and it was two houses two grain elevators and a highway that was it and just fields 360 right there was nothing else and so you had to you know make your own fun and we would run around and play inside the grain elevators which is not safe to do but we did anyway um we used to go out on treks all day we'd leave first thing in the morning my brother and i and we'd go off into the field see how far we could get and then make our way back long long past dark and then uh and my parents would be there my mom and my stepdad would be there just kind of well here's some dinner <laughs> time to go to bed you got school in the morning and be like all right cool uh but that was it was a lot of exploring a lot of uh just running around trying to figure out stuff to do or anything for most of my most of my childhood now you said green elevators. I'm not familiar with that term. Oh, grain elevators. So uh, if you've seen anything from pictures of the West, you see these big, uh, they're wooden buildings that are probably four stories tall-ish, and they're always beside a railroad track. And basically what it is is so um, the farmers would bring all the grain to the elevator, and uh, they would, you know, there'd be a big sale and make sure everybody were bought and sold and so on and so forth. But then the grain would get loaded into the base of the elevator, and it, it's just basically a it's an elevator. So it has a uh, a scoop that brings all the grain up to the top, and then once it's at the top, there's a funnel that shoots it down into the train, so you can load trains full of grain. Super safe place for kids to play. Oh, super safe! <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, grain dust is uh, highly 
highly flammable, mm-hmm. very combustible. <laughs> I remember uh, when I was in, in uh, Fire Academy, they showed us a video, and it was a one very well-known line of duty death where the, I think it was a more rural fire department, and they were cutting on the side of a grain silo, and it exploded, and I believe it killed yep. the firefighter. 100%. Yeah, it is um, supremely combustible. Let's put it that way. <laughs> It'll go up pretty fast. But yeah, we used to run around in there. We used to play in the trains because there would be trains that would roll up and stop and we wait for wait for loading and stuff, but uh, yeah, it wasn't wasn't very safe. But we also had tons of animals too, right? People would, uh, especially being that far in the country, people would just drive their dogs and cats and stuff out to the country and toss them out and drive away. And so we had at one point we had fourteen cats, three dogs, um, and we'd get lots of strays too. Would just randomly run up to the house because we'd be in the middle of nowhere, right? So it was. It was an interesting place, <laughs> to say the least. So we stayed there for a couple of years, you know, moved to another place, stayed there for a year or two, moved to another place. Uh, most of my time was spent in in and around Calgary, though, just being a being a crazy teenager in the 90s. <laughs> when you have that many cats, doesn't it shift where now the cats can say, I have five humans, rather than you say you have 14 cats? You know, I didn't even think about that, but I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, I think the cats basically owned us, for sure. Yeah, we we thought we owned them, but yeah, we really didn't. <laughs> now you it you was, talked uh, about the you know the divorce itself. Obviously, there's a lot of dynamics. Um, sadly, uh, I'm divorced, and my little boy. Mm-hmm. It used to be when I was on shift, he'd be with his mother. When I came off shift, then he'd be with me, and that worked pretty well. And then you know, it kind of went to more half and half when I transitioned out and was just you know doing a regular work week. So, what was that dynamic? Did you get to see your father, or were you one of the ones that really lost contact with one one parent? It, it was tough. Um, so, looking back on it, at the time, I didn't really realize this, but uh, there was a moment I think I was that er, one of the earliest memories I have um, <clears throat> during the divorce, and it was getting really bad. My dad was um, playing lots of music, and he was at the bars all night drinking. And, you know, he was just it was not a a good scene to begin with. And uh, I remember my mom coming home at one point being absolutely terrified. We locked all the doors. She was telling us that we can't let dad in and it's not okay. And we, so my brother and I just started like laying traps in the hallway for my dad, which was an interesting, like we would take our bobby pins, like our pins and stuff, right? And he'd bend them up and you put them on the floor and just like, anything we could think of to, if he gets in here, we got to stop him this way. And if he gets here, we got, it was uh, challenging to look back on later on in life. Uh, And then unfortunately, well, both fortunately and unfortunately, my dad decided he was going to do his own thing. And we didn't see him very often. I think, uh, you know, we might see him on a birthday or Christmas or something like that, but it's usually my mom like, Hey, you know, you have children you should do something with them, right? So we would kind of get dropped off and hang out. Uh, Luckily, my stepdad um, was a friend of my mom's uh, initially, and then eventually they became uh, partners. But he, he was there the whole time. He basically was like, he helped us out. He uh, drove a taxi at that point in time. So he would take us to school in the mornings and do stuff like that. And um, he became 100% my dad at that point. Um, my biological dad. <laughs> there was a point in time I didn't see him for seven years. And I think it was between, I think it was like 11 to like 
18 kind of thing. So it was like right when you would want your dad <laughs> to be around. Absolutely. And he just, I never heard from him. We didn't even get cards. We didn't get anything. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. And then randomly, I think on my 18th, 17th or 18th birthday, I got a friggin' card in the mail. It was just like, happy birthday. <laughs> like, so eventually that, that turned into a lot of, uh, there was a lot of resentment and a lot of anger and a lot of missing, like, I don't know why, why wouldn't you want to be with your kids? That kind of stuff. It, uh, I figured it out later on in life, but throughout that teenage and twenties, it was a, uh, it was a, it was a hard pill to swallow. So when you look back now with this, you know, different lens that you have, especially with, you know, navigating so many of the mental health conversations that we have mm -hmm. currently, which is phenomenal. Do you identify a sense of uh, kind of diminished self-worth like that? Why wasn't I good enough that so many people, whether it's, you know, I got my ex, her father, the sperm donor, literally upped and left when she was five and just went and started a brand new family and she never heard from him. Man. I mean, that to me is a piece of shit. You know, I'll say that. I'm yeah. not a huge fan of her either, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, I understand the trauma. I really do. I get it. I really get it. But so, you know, that that impact of being present as a father and you, you were talking to me about your little boy being, you know, off sick today. You were there with mm -hmm. him. You're taking care of him. That's what we need. So talk to me about the impact and what that did to you when you look back now and analyze a father who basically through a child's eyes, you know, they weren't good enough for him to stay. Yeah, it was, uh, it definitely affected my self-worth quite a bit. And uh, it wasn't actually until recently that I, that I recognized how much it affected my self-worth. And, um, you know, as doing the podcasts and doing the, uh, all the chats and discussing mental health and being an advocate and all these things have led me to an area of my own psyche that I can now kind of detach from the actual emotion of it and look at it separate. And so I gained a lot of empathy over that actually, which is uh, quite interesting. I, I really looked at the, the, the anger, the resentment, all the stuff that I was holding onto for so long and then realized that, you know, it's not helping anybody. And not only that, he doesn't know. <laughs> so it, uh, it was one of those things that, you know, he kind of flipped the script completely and said, oh, right, okay. I also get it too, because I understand his background. My grandmother, his mother, was a undiagnosed schizophrenic for his entire childhood. He, she didn't get diagnosed until he was an adult. And uh, some of the stuff that he had to go through, especially living on the ranch out in the middle of nowhere with a schizophrenic mother, <laughs> that, that messes the kid up, right? And all of the uh, the things that uh, that led up to the issues between my mom and my dad, I have an understanding now. I don't agree with them, right? Because we've talked about this before, is that it's all choice, right? You always have the choice in each moment to make either good choices or bad choices, and those choices are up to you. Um, but at least I can understand them now. Whereas being younger, I really couldn't because it was so attached to the emotion of just... You know, I'm a 15-year-old boy and I, I want to know what my dad is doing. But I haven't heard from him in four years. So, like, you start to really go inside on it and go, well, like, what is it? Is it is it us? Is it me? Is it my brother? Is it, like, what is the problem? Because we always wanted to be near him, right? You just have this innate sense of I want to be around my dad, especially for young boys. You know, you, you that's the person you're looking towards. Um, 
And it's challenging for especially step parents uh, when you're dealing with kids that aren't technically yours, right? You can love them and um, raise them and, you know, pour your soul into them. But a teenager is so full of emotions <laughs> and so full of uh, hormones and they don't know how to deal with anything and it becomes a it becomes an impediment, right? Because you're not my dad. You don't know me. No, 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 no. So my stepdad did his best to try and manage us. Um, but it, we really wanted to be around our dad. And then um, once you become an adult and you haven't dealt with any of those feelings, then it becomes anger, it becomes resentment, and it becomes this... It can turn into two things, right? I mean, you know this. It can turn into this drive where you're like, I'm going to prove that I'm worth something and screw you and screw that guy. And then I'm going to do whatever it takes. And uh, Or it can turn into, well, I guess I'm just, you know, I'll... I'll I'll do what I do what I can. We'll see what happens. And you kind of just back away from the world a little bit, and you let the world dictate what it is you're going to do from there. And it uh, it was it was tough because up until I decided to join the army, I think I was just floating in this sense of like, well, it's not really worth it. almost nihilism, right? Just nothing. The effort to do anything isn't really worth it because people can just leave at any time. So, yeah, it's a, it's almost like a trap. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? Like it can, uh, it's a self-laid trap because you are in a negative state of mind to begin with. You are in a, or you're having negative thoughts, let's put it that way. And you set yourself up with questions like, uh, well, if nobody else cares, why should I? but you're only looking for people who don't care, right? You're not actually looking for anybody that does care. And, uh, you know, we've said it a couple times, um, I think on The Collective was, you know, who you surround yourself with matters. And when you're in a negative spot and you are looking around for people that don't care, you're going to surround yourself with people that don't care. <laughs> and then you, and then it's down that hill, down that rabbit hole. It's Absolutely. Silly. Yeah. Well, the I mean, first thing you touched on was the multi-generational trauma. I think that's that's the next part of this conversation. That's my second book is going to be addressing that because, you know, we look back at our childhood. Well, if you keep reverse engineering, you get to World War II and World War One, And, you know, if yep. it's just a never-ending cycle unless you finally are able to break it. So when it comes to the life on the ranch, I know that you ended up becoming a horseman. When you were in your childhood, were you, were you already around horses? And if so, were you finding any therapeutic element from that? Um, I think I found the, the naturalistic healing of it, right? Just being around animals, being around nature. It gives you... Um, I, I, unless you actually take the time to find the insight there, I think it it happens naturally, but you don't really understand what's happening, right? Like when you have a rough day and you just you're like, oh, this is friggin' ridiculous, and you go for a long walk, right? <laughs> Being out in nature is going to allow you to process some of those feelings and let go of some, but because that's a natural process. But if you don't take the time to really think about it or really understand what you're doing to, you know, intentionally do it, then it's hit and miss because you just know that going for a walk helps sometimes. Right. And then, uh, but being around horses, especially, I've always, um, I've always been attracted to them, I guess, more so is the power. 
and it's such such a docile power, which is what I I think I really love about it, and I think really gave me some insight on why equine therapy helped me so much after coming back from overseas. But the the nature of a horse is that they are technically prey, right? They are preyed upon animals, <clears throat> and in the wild, um, you know, a mountain lion take them down, or uh, sometimes a pack of wolves, maybe, but uh, kind of rare. But the the thing is, is that they're still at the top of that chain, right? Like nothing messes with a herd of horses. If you can get one off to the side, okay, cool. You might want to take that down, but horses will run over basically anything. Mm-hmm. If you've been and, kicked uh, by a horse, you know how, how hard that is too. I got knocked across a stable once. <laughs> they hurt a lot. I've been kicked by a few, been bucked off a few. Um, but I think that's what really attracted me to them was the fact that they were so powerful, but didn't use it like it wasn't an aggressive power it just was power and uh i think that really helped quite a bit once i became a soldier i i've said this quite a few times for um my own podcast and stuff but you know being preyed preyed upon that's how we lived in afghanistan right we were constantly being aware that people were hunting us on a regular basis. And I think that's why I saw such an attachment with horses when I got back because that's how they live their lives. Um, but being a young kid, yeah, there was, uh, you know, we had three, four horses out there with lots of cattle and that was, uh, and then just wind, lots of wind. I don't know if, you, if you've ever been in Southern Alberta down by uh, Pinch Creek, it is one of the windiest places in the world, literally. And uh, it has wind turbines all over it but it is a massive wind tunnel. You'll see easily winds of up to 100, 120 kilometers an hour. It'll knock over trucks. Like on the highways, there's signs that are like, <laughs> be aware, this is the wind speed right now. And people, are, there's uh, pull-offs for trucks and stuff that they can just stop. And there's been lots of rollovers and all kinds of things from it. It's, it can drive you nuts. There's actually been quite a few cases down there too of people um, being driven mad from the wind just how consistent and hard it is. But side note, I go down there to hunt now too, which is fun. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, the life on the ranch was, I think, the break from the life in the city because we kept kind of jumping back and forth, especially through when when I was young. Once I became a teenager, it was, you know, all of those emotions, all of those hormones. And then uh, I would be able to go to the ranch for a summer, right? And just kind of, let it all go and then I'd come back and we'd move <laughs> we'd do it, kind of do it all over again it was uh, it was interesting but I, I I like the fact that you brought up the, the multi-generational trauma stuff because it's so accurate and so true is that you gotta be the you gotta be one you gotta be the one to make those hard choices you gotta be the one to make those hard decisions and go you know it'd be so much easier just to yell at my kids and tell them what to do and they'll just cower in fear and do what I tell them but then you also got to go, okay, well, that would be easier. Sure. Okay. But I want to do it better than what I got, you know, that kind of stuff. And you have to make those choices in those moments to, to get rid of that multi-generational trauma. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. And it's interesting because I've never thought of it this way, but you just sparked a thought the way you described horses in our professions. We love the term, you know, the lion is not uh, whatever bothered by the opinion of the sheep or you know the sheep dog protecting the flock but 
I think the horse is a much closer alignment. Like we're not very good predators as species. Let's be honest. Like, have you tried yeah. catching a fish with your bare hands or a rabbit? <laughs> we're really fucking awful at it. And even our teeth aren't set up for it. Let's be honest. So I'm not saying that we yeah. should all be vegan, but you know, we are definitely more suited to scavenging and you know, foraging. Um, but that being said. I think that's why there is that closeness. Obviously, we do with dogs as well, but with horses. And I grew mm -hmm. up around horses. My dad was a horse vet, veterinarian. So, um, you know, I grew up with all kinds. And I just got to ride whichever horse happened to be with us at the time, which is probably mm -hmm. why I became a stuntman eventually. <laughs> but, you know, that's what you want. You want, and, and you know, Jordan um, Peterson articulates as well, but you want that kind of, you know, walk softly but carry a big stick you don't want to be yeah. a predator walking around beating your chest you want to be a kind compassionate creature but just have the capacity if you have to to be able to yeah. hurt to be able to protect exactly i think that um it aligns very well for sure i really love the idea of you know that the the stallion the the herd this is the other part that it really applies to is the fact that you don't see lone horses Rolling, rolling me around and it actually when you put a horse by itself it freaks out right like you know this <laughs> is that you never put a horse by itself out in the middle of nowhere it, they just go nuts they're gregarious creatures by nature they need to be with other animals even if it's like a goat or a dog or something else but they need a friend and uh you know when you're a first responder or military something like that you're you work as the part of the team right you but that's the best part of it is that you work as a part of the team because the team doesn't actually work if everybody's working on their own. The team works only if everyone's working for the team and working for the betterment of the team. Um, one of the things that horses do regularly is they post sentry. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this many times, right? One horse will be up, the rest will be eating. That guy goes down, somebody else pops up. You know, if they sleep, there's always one watching, right? there, And it's, it's because they're being, they're prey animals naturally, right? They've grown those instincts, but it's also because the herd matters more than, you know, me being able to eat right now, or the herd matters more than me being able to sleep right now. It's all about the team. It's all about the group versus it's all about me. And I think, I think dogs as well, because they're pack animals, why we attach them so much versus the, you know, other large scale predators, why we're not all running around calling ourselves, you know, I'm lying. I'm a, you know, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a Nile crocodile, right? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that, <laughs> that one. Kind of stuff. I'm a crocodile. No, but I, right? <laughs> protect, they, but they're, they're aggressive. <laughs> 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 but they're, you know, they're, they're pinnacles within their, they're the apex species in their area, right? So why don't we call ourselves them? Because we're all hard and tough and raw. No, it's because we want to be part of a group because we're not lone animals just looking to survive and eat whatever we can. I think that's important to to recognize, especially in the first responder, is that we all want to be hard. We all want to be tough. We all want to be, Bruh! but it's got to be, that's got to be secondary to uh, being at peace, being calm, being regulated. You just have to have that as a tool, similar to, you know, a firearm or similar to uh, a weapon or a knife or anything like that, is that those things in themselves don't help. Like if I were to just to hand you a firearm, I would not be comfortable with the fact that you have zero training. I don't know whether you have training or not. You know what I mean? Hypothetically speaking, hand a, a firearm off to somebody and just say, here you go. Have fun. 
right? Like that, that, that seems not smart to me. But, you know, some of the guys you know, some of the guys I know, if I were to hand a pistol off to Sean, I would feel better. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's just safer got, in your hands. <laughs> exactly, but it's, it is a, uh, that, that strength, that power, that stuff, the, the reason that it feels good to hand that off to somebody else or to hand somebody off like, say, Sean Taylor, is that they're skilled. They've taken the time to regulate themselves. They can manage high and low stress levels and, and be calm and clear. And so, you know, as warriors, as, you know, first responders, as people that want to run and in, run into the uh, sound of gunfire or fire or, or run in to save someone's life or do whatever. The reason we do that is because at a base level, we are compassionate first. Then there's the warrior. Then there's the right. At least that's my view on it. Yeah, no, I agree, hundred percent. And you think about the the analogies, the you know, lion, king of the jungle. You know, like, well, firstly, they're not in the jungle, so you've even got that wrong. But it's there's that. It's, yeah, it's based on it's based on the John Rambo, you know, predator. I mean, these these fictional facades of masculinity. And I think the thing that we forget, and this is something I talk about a lot now, is what sent us into uniform, if you really unpack it, is kindness and compassion. But then you mm -hmm. put the uniform on, you get indoctrinated, and all of a sudden, no, I'm, you know, I'm a SEAL, I'm a firefighter, and that's when we start falling apart because we forget that you know, the warrior poet, we forget the poet part completely, and we think yeah. we're supposed to run around just sticking swords in people's faces, which is not, when you look at any ancient warrior culture... <laughs> That's not what they did. You know, the samurai no. weren't just, you know, lopping off heads. There were tea ceremonies and calligraphy and all these things. So that's what you've got. To, yeah. You've got to create that yin and yang. And we've just become this white circle, which is a complete <laughs> fictional version of what a man or woman actually is. Yeah. I think it also, I think it comes from a natural deflection and insecurity. I think the harder you want to be that predator, that dangerous Thing wandering in the dark right I think that a lot of that comes from the insecurity of you know maybe I'm not that right now or I wasn't that at some point and therefore now I'm going to be that um, I saw an interesting quote online and it was talking about the the fact that uh, I think it was the hero and the villain story are the same but their reasoning to do what they do is different so it usually starts with you know being orphaned or um, being damaged in some way or being left out, you know, having trauma. And then it becomes a choice. I'm going to make sure nobody else feels this ever again, or I'm going to make sure everybody feels this right now. And that choice, it's a, it's a lot. If you look at it from a larger scale, I think it symbolizes a lot of what first responders and military people do is that they want to make that choice of, you know, I don't want anybody else to feel this pain. So I'm going to stand up and protect those around me. Well, how do I protect those around me? Well, uh, you know, maybe I'll be a policeman because they protect people every day and then you become a policeman and you see the SWAT guys rolling around in tack gear and you're like, ooh, that's pretty sweet, right? And they don't care. They're not part of the rabble. They're not in, in amongst the, uh, the uh, let's say, the, the rest of the population, right? And you're like, ooh. I'm going to do that. Well, how do you do that? Now you got to work with certain people with a certain drive that uh, can get you up to that, to that level. And 
then you have to be indoctrinated into that system and then you have to run that system and depending on how who runs that system and who the leadership is and how that's played out it's very easy to make it you know who's got the biggest muscles who's got who can run the fastest who can shoot the fa- who can shoot the best who can da 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 rather than our team how many lives are we going to save? Like my buddy Seb. I mean, you know Seb, right? You've had him on here. Yes, Seb Levois. Um, Yeah, he's fantastic. And he is of that mindset, right? He is one of the pinnacles in my eyes of that warrior poet. He will do very bad things to you if you try to hurt somebody, right? But he's also super chill, always got a smile on his face, and he loves life. So, like, <laughs> it, it, it shouldn't really work. But when you make it work, there's some fantastic people. Yeah. I've always said some of the nicest people I know, some of the most dangerous people I know. Yeah. It's it's interesting too, because if you just have, if you're just dangerous, but you're not also calm and relaxed and regulated, I should say, is probably the best word for it. um, Then you're just a scared little kid. Right, you're just a scared little kid with a stick running around trying to hurt people because you don't know how to do anything else. Yeah, which is cowardice, not courage, and that's the thing. And I don't mean that judgmentally, but it's it takes true courage to address the pain that's inside you. Oh, boy, does it ever! Because <laughs> it takes work, and you got to sit with it, and you got to be there. And and I mean work, not in, ser- in terms of drudgery, but you're gonna like if you go through a a, a journey of healing, if you really want to be you know, a better person or you want to be the person you used to be or you want to make yourself into the pinnacle of what you can be, you're going to have to sit with all that. <laughs> you're, going to have to, you're going to have to be in it and then you're going to have to wade through it and then you're going to have to find the pieces that, you know, you need to learn from and then you got to flush it and then you got to move on. <laughs> so, <laughs> but there's so much up, there's so much, uh, entangled in all of that right your personal identity and you know all of your training and the the lifestyle that you came from plus why me why do i have to go through this and then then you get into imposter syndrome and like there's (laughs) it's it's trying to untie the gordian knot and it is uh sometimes you got to come in come at it like alexander and just cut it in half and then start from the center and work your way out it's a, it's a it's a tough run <laughs> absolutely but well worth it yeah worth well it. I, exactly so i want to get kind of into your kind of military timeline and that the other side so when you were in this school age you're running around you know getting on trains and riding grain elevators <laughs> before you actually entered the military was the military always something on your mind as far as career or was there something else prior to that Oh, no, it was, uh, I have a picture of myself when I was, I think I was three or four with uh, an olive drab sweater with the word army stenciled across the front, right? Like I'd, I'd want to be in the army since I was teeny tiny. I, I got other pictures of me standing on top of a of a treehouse with my pop gun, just standing sentry, <laughs> like an old school <laughs> British sentry too, like with uh, uh, port arms and everything. It was, uh, it was kind of silly, but I just stood, I just stood there. I'd like that's all I wanted to be. That was my my vision of what it was to be. Um, I guess what I was really looking for was the the group. I was really that was where I was like I get to be a part of something big. 
and uh, and I was you know grew up, growing up in Southern Alberta. It's very it's called the Texas of Canada, right? Like it's super patriotic and it's all about service. And there's you know farmers and ranchers and people who understand that you got to work in order to survive. And if you want to thrive, you got to work harder. So there was this mentality of just like who are the hardest workers around? Soldiers. Okay, cool. I'm in. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> um, it did lead into some other things of, um, you know, thinking that my, that my worth was based upon the work that I was able to put out. Right. But I had to wade through that stuff later on in my life. But yeah, I always wanted to be in the army. And, uh, I just thought the soldiers were the coolest people in the world. And then I actually delayed my, my sign up, which was stupid. By the time I became, uh, I was in high school and I was a, I was a pothead. I was, uh, I was just looking to kind of disconnect at that point in time. I didn't really want to be a part of the world. I tried doing some sports. I played some football, played soccer, played rugby, played, you know, whatever I could do to get rid of some of this excess energy and, um, all the extra feelings that I could turn off when I was smashed into stuff on the football field. Um, but I was also super tall really lanky and <laughs> freaking awkward as heck. <laughs> just, uh, my body was not working. I, by the time I got to grade 12, I was six, five and 175 pounds. Yeah. So I was like rail thin and, uh, yeah, growing pains are not, not a fun thing to go through, but that's a side story. <laughs> um, as for the army, you know, I thought I wanted to be in the army up until I was about 17, 18. And then I was like, I'm going to be a drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> the other career path. <laughs> the other career path, right? Um, and uh, so, yeah, I just kind of did a bunch of, you know, jobs, right? I worked as a painter for a little while. I worked at a gas station. I worked at a freaking liquor store or whatever as I got out of school. Um, and it wasn't until I was about 21. Yeah, I was 21 something when I actually signed up. And that was in, uh, that would have been 2003 initially. Um, kind of a funny story though with, the, with that though. I walked in there, did all my paperwork, right? I'm, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to walk in here and they're like, do you know what you want to do? You want to watch some videos? I'm like, no, I'm going to be a combat engineer. Let's freaking do this. Uh, and they're like, okay, well, here's all the paperwork. I'm like, done. Here you go. Okay. Here's all the references done. Here you go. All right. Come in, do an aptitude test, smash that out. Like I was motivated and, uh, and then they came to a substance use form and I looked at it and I was like, this is going to be, uh, and in my mind, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, if I lie, there's going to be a piss test as I walk out of here. Right. Like that was the, the, what I was thinking there wasn't, but, um, so I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to be honest. They don't care. All they want to know is that whether or not I can be in or not. So I was honest. <laughs> I was a smoker at that point, so I wrote all that in. Um, my, I had been drinking probably more than I should have, but I wrote that in. All the marijuana that I've been smoking, wrote that in. And then uh, I wrote in some mushrooms that I had done, and I couldn't remember when it was. And I was like, ah, oh, it's probably like a year and a half. year and a half should be good. Like, not that big of a deal. Uh, so I wrote in that it had been 18 months since I had done mushrooms, and they took all my stuff, looked it over, and they're like, e yeah, so you need at least three years of separation from any psycho 
psychedelic, there we go, that's what I look for, uh, psychedelic use. And I was like, okay, you know what? Fine, I'll be back in 18 months. And I was all like, again, super motivated, uh, which benefit at the time, actually, it gave me a whole bunch of time to train, which is what I did. I started running more, I was rucking more, and I was doing all the stuff I thought I needed to do to, to kick butt. And I showed up a year and a half later to the day Boom, threw my paperwork in. Let's do this. I told you I'd be back. And the uh, recruiter's like, I don't know who you are. Because everybody had been posted out. It was a whole new crew. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's up in your face. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And they were like, I don't, okay, sure, man, whatever. So yeah, we, uh, and then I got in in uh, December of 2005. So when I swore in, it was. Uh... <laughs> See, it's funny. I, I My very first recruitment effort in the fire service was city of miami beach and they were at this this testing where we do the physical and written um the emt skills and then they send the results out to a whole bunch of fire departments well miami beach has sent someone to go to this event basically to try and kind of headhunt and they have these pre-apps and i'm a brand spanking new you know fire academy graduate with honesty in my heart, like, oh, okay, well, this is when I, and they we're talking still quite a long time ago. Yeah, I tried ecstasy when I was in Japan. It was, you know, had a good time, just danced a lot, hugged a lot of people, <laughs> nothing big deal. The dude literally yeah. like screwed it up and threw it in my face. And I'm like, ah, so I have to lie to be a firefighter. Okay. And then never had a problem after that. No, yeah. no, 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 I never would try. I'm too busy in church reading the Bible to, to try anything bad. You want me to run in burning buildings and cut dead people out of cars? Yeah, I can see yeah. why you want someone with a fucking clean slate. That makes perfect sense. Perfect sense, so it yeah. It was such bullshit. It made me realize oh, that man. we, how many people do we disqualify based on these fucking backward, you know, parameters that we create? I totally get it. If you've abused drugs, you know, as far as, you know, stolen opiates or, you know, God forbid, done something with children. You have no business in in this profession. But for sure, the you know all the the fucking you know speeding tickets, and you tried a personal use of this or whatever. These are the kind of people that are gonna line up to be in the military or first responder professions. So we have to get 100%. over that kind of pseudo Victorian mentality that you know we're all because all that happens is you're just forcing us to lie, and that's the one thing yeah. that I hate doing. But I had to if I was going to be a firefighter. So it's funny that you had the same experience. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> the funny thing is, I think it really doesn't matter, right? None of that actually matters whether or not I smoke some dope or whether or not uh, this person did some ecstasy. Cool, right? Don't do it anymore. Let's go work, right? Like <laughs> once you get to basic or you get into your, uh, you get into a fire hall, you want the people that have other experiences, right? Like if you were a completely straight laced, never deviating from the path or the, you know, whatever you want to say, I was in church 24 seven or however you want to, whatever image you want to come up with in your mind on that, but has absolutely no experience in terms of, you know, drug use or, um, you know, the, the lesser, can't say even lesser it's not even a great word for it but the places you would normally want to keep kids away from right if you've never experienced anything of that world and you become a police officer you're going to be dealing with that 24 7 mm -hmm. you're not going right? to that is going to be your life firefighters same thing ems <laughs> right i mean if you join the army you kind of join in a bunch of other degenerates to begin with so <laughs> it's not that not a huge culture shock there but 
that's not something you want to put a brand new police officer into or a brand new firefighter into having to run into a burning building full of needles and have no experience with like what that is or how it works or why people are there. And because now you're not doing your job as well. Right. And it's blows my mind. It really does blow my mind, but yeah, mushrooms kept me out for about 18 months. It also, what it did was, um, had I been on that class, that initial class, when I first signed up, I would have been in, uh, uh, I would have been in Afghanistan earlier and I would have been probably on up Medusa stuff like that where we would have been running gunfights and all kinds of things which could have very easily changed the rest of the outcome right so i look back at it as a as a bonus like hey yeah i got an extra 18 months to hang with my family first off i got an extra 18 months to train i got an extra 18 months to kind of figure out what i what it really was i wanted to do there and then yeah and then i got in <laughs> so eventually i got there and uh it's kind of funny um i've said this a couple times about the training portion of it. Once I got into the military, I had the dream of what everybody wants, right? Is you, I did my basic in January. I did my next course in, uh, I think it was April or March, did my threes course in the summer. I, by the, my first year was spent training. By the end of that year, I was in my unit in October ish. Uh, I was in one CR in Edmonton. January of 2007, we got stood up for tour, did training all the way through 2007, left in uh, February of 2008 to go to Afghanistan, went to Afghanistan for eight months. <laughs> like then, this, So there was this, I was in the, the kind of the perfect pipeline, what most people want. And uh, <laughs> I was still chomping at the bit. I was still thinking it was going too slow. And I was like, ah, complaining all the time. And I was like, you had three days in between your courses that I was like, yeah, well, I wanted more. And then I get a little bit more on between the next two courses. And I'd be like, ah, taking too long. And like, it was just, you know, if you're not complaining, you shouldn't be a soldier. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a, the, the art of complaining in the army is, uh, it, it's an art for sure. But uh, it was, it was, I mean, it was good training. We did quite a bit and uh, it was fast as fast as the, you know, the military can get you through. So within, within two years going from first day in the army, in January of 2006, I was in Afghanistan, February, 2008. As an engineer. So a, as an engineer. Yeah. It was a, um, oh yeah, I guess I didn't really say that. So yeah, I joined up as a combat engineer and, uh, get to do all kinds of fun stuff with explosives and bridges and ditches and, um, obstacles and cutting down trees and man you name it we do kind of everything it's a fun time so one thing that i always ask anyone who was deployed into into combat um the the media especially here in the u.s we get a very polarized view and i always kind of preface this question with the same monologue um either kill them all let god sort them out stacking bodies on one side or yeah, maybe your mum would be closer to this one. You know, they're all baby killers, you know, the, the peace love movement. And then you have the men and women, arguably children, that we send overseas to fight for our country. So when you got over there, regardless of the politics or the reasons that sent you to that place, was there a moment where you realized that there were some atrocities happening, you know, m largely probably to the, the native people of Afghanistan? that made you realize, okay, there was, there was some, some horrific people that we do need to take care of. Yeah. While I was there, it was pretty bad. We were, so 
to preface this, I'm going to, there's a bit of a preface to this because it took some introspection afterwards to really understand this. Throughout my training in 2007, the guys that were training us were the guys that had just come back from um, Op Medusa in 2006. So what we were getting trained for was basically running gunfights. They were like, okay, you're going to be over there. You're going to get shot at every day. You guys are going to be advancing into contact. You guys are going to be clearing building, clearing rooms. And so a lot of our training was very heavy on, you know, firefights and gun combat. And like we were, that's what we were getting ready for. Um, so at the very beginning, it was, we're going to freaking glass this place. Like, let's, let's get it. <laughs> it's on. Um, they wanted, they picked a fight. We're here to fight. Let's see what's let's see what's up. And uh, once we got there, the whole dynamic had changed. Like this is the thing about Afghanistan that anybody anybody will tell you is that you use one tactic on them, they will change theirs, and then you got to change yours. As soon as you change yours, they change theirs. And so there's this constant up and down, and what's going to happen. And yeah, so in 2006, the guys that were there, they were still getting IED'd. But the gunfight was the, you know, point of impact for a lot of people. When we were there, there were IDs everywhere, <laughs> and um, they so they had complete, almost completely switched to IDs, and they started to use the tactics of uh, an ambush, and then they would run away and lead us into IDs, stuff like that. So the uh, the tactics had changed, but we had got there, and we were like, "All right, boys." <laughs> Line us up. Where are we going? Um, and so, so our mindset initially was very much of, let's just smash this place. About halfway through tours, when we started to realize like how absolutely different Afghans were compared to us, and that was the big one I think for me when I started to go. None of the logic that I would have coming here makes any sense here. Nothing. Um, I watched this is this happened somewhere mid tour, but um, still blows my mind. The uh, there's this highway, it's Ring Road South, so it is the one main highway goes around southern uh, southern Kandahar, and <clears throat> there were IDs on it regularly, but it was the main thoroughfare, so there was lots of traffic on it regularly. Um, this particular day, I was standing. Uh, sentry protecting a bunch of heavy equipment that was building another road behind us. And so all I was doing was staring across, <laughs> staring at the desert with a road in front of me, just watching traffic, right? <laughs> it was super, super entertaining. Uh, but I saw this motorcycle coming down the road and it was picking up speed and coming, it was going to go around a van, or I guess it was a truck, something like that. Um, and there was another car coming from the other side. And so the two cars were lining up to pass each other and the motorcycle tried to go in between both of them as the cars passed. Now that right there, you'd be like, why? Like, why? <laughs> there's, there's no reason for that, but um, the logic doesn't work there. So this did, the dude did exactly what I thought was going to happen. He went off one of the mirrors and went in between the vehicles as they passed each other like and wiped out his bike. Both cars stopped. One guy got out of the car. The other car then just carried on. The guy that got out of the car went over and I was like, oh, they're going to go check on how he is and like see if he's okay, right? No. He just ran over there and started laying the boots to him. Just 
beating the crap out of him in the middle of the street. And I'm like, okay, so do we, and I'm like looking at my chain of command. I'm like, do we do anything? They're like, civilian issue. That's, they're doing their own thing. Some uh, Afghan national police show up. And I'm like, oh, okay, the police are here. <laughs> They'll deal with this. They got out, talked to the guy a little bit, uh, the guy that was beating the other guy. And, uh, and then the cops proceeded to, or the police started to <laughs> lay the boots to this guy. And then that guy got the car and walked off. And, I, and then they just threw that guy off on the ditch, took him around a building, and then we never saw them again. <laughs> so it was, uh, it's a different country, right? And the rules that they live by are completely different. And so about halfway through, ta- uh, halfway through the tour, I was like, I don't even, I don't even know what to do anymore. Like I, I know what my job is, but are we actually really doing anything here? Like what is, I'm building a road that they can then blow up you know, in a month or a week or whatever. And then we're going to rebuild this road. Hooray. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is uh, it's good times. And then by the end of tour, I was so, so bitter and so done with it. I was like, we should just freaking nuke this place, turn it to glass and it'll be gone. And then it won't bother anybody ever again. Huzzah. Um, but again, that's, it's, it, we're, we weren't, seeing or getting any of the information of what was happening, right? We'd get intelligence reports that sounded like this. Be on the lookout for a white and yellow Toyota Corolla license plate, squiggly, Sue 7, hashtag, squiggly, 7. And we'd be like, Roger, right? Like, (laughs) cool, man. The the white and yellow uh, Corollas out there are, um, they're everywhere. They are the car of choice. They're just everywhere. So that doesn't help us at all. But that's the kind of stuff, that's the information we were being fed at the lowest levels. And we didn't get any of the strategic, like, hey, we're making progress here. We're making progress here. This is what's happening. It was just wake up. Oh, we're going on patrol today? Okay. Cool. <laughs> We'd get our orders and our, we're going to uh, attack this objective. We're going to get this town. And then we're going to hang out there. And then we're going to come back here. And that's so similar to the, all the fire departments I've worked at. And I've worked some some great ones, but there was never a mission. There was never, this is the amount of house fires we had last year. We're going to try and, you know, reduce this. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to, this is, you know, how many wrecks we're doing. We're going to try and, you know, impact working with the city and maybe improving driver safety you know putting on free classes defensive drive whatever there was never just show up put your gear on the rig and wait for someone to call 911 they're having their worst day try and unfuck it as best you can and then yeah. go back to the station you know and this is i think whether and i've heard this from the military too this is exactly what i heard from iraq and afghanistan some of these other places you know you're going in to do a hostage rescue you know exactly what your your goal mm-hmm. is you know i think maybe maybe the, some of the top tier forces had a little bit of that you know we're going in to get bin laden we're going to you know rescue this captain from these somali pirates whatever it is there's a little bit more you know beginning and end but for especially as you start getting deeper into some of these conflicts like you said it's like what exactly are we doing especially when you start seeing you know the the as you said the lack of results now i want to throw the other side of the question for you Another thing that we don't hear about is the kindness and compassion in yeah. these places that we deploy. And I 
really hate the fact that normally the entire country is tarred with that same brush. Oh, we're at a war with Afghanistan or Iraq. And the reality is there's the tyrannical, you know, few oppressing the masses in their own country. Yeah. So talk to me about, you know, memories you have of some of the kindness and compassion that you saw overseas. Uh, it was it's interesting too because <laughs> the, uh, the kindness and compassion, especially in southern Afghanistan, it's a, it's a very rural uh, rural area, right? Kandahar is not a bustling metropolis by any means, um, but a lot of the the actual compassion came from the kids more than anybody. Um, the adults really, everybody kind of looked at us with this, you know, an air of suspicion just in general because we're walking around with weapons right <laughs> i mean i would too right um but the the kids they were just they were so interested and they just wanted anything something they wanted to have something see something get something so anytime we could actually give them something <clears throat> we uh so uh it, when i was in Masamgar, right at the beginning of tour <clears throat> we had a there's a small village kind of just on the south side of the mountain and uh we would sit up on the the hesco and we had a bunch of golf balls and somebody had brought uh, you know three or four golf clubs at some point and um <clears throat> and so we would hit these golf balls off the mountain and uh they'd go flying down into the valley and they'd hit the ground and the kids from that village started finding all these golf balls and they realized that they were ours um and so what they did was they would go out and collect them and then they'd bring them to the front gate and we'd give them like a bag of candy or whatever and we'd take the balls back and we'd go back up and hit more balls. Right. Yeah. right? And uh, and it was super fun up until the fact that the kids started to realize that they were like all of the kids started to realize they were getting candy from the base. So at one point uh, the kids stopped waiting until we were done hitting and they were just sitting at the bottom of the hill like <laughs> looking to catch them, right? <laughs> Uh, and some of the guys were just ripping shots, um, you know, see how far we can hit them, right? But uh, they would come down, slice, and get weird turns. And I think we missed this little girl's head at one point by like a couple of inches. But she just kind of like she was sitting there waiting for it, and she's just like, Whoa. Um, but a lot of that, and watching the kids play with each other, and uh, you know, again, different, very different though, very different. <laughs> it was a different kind of. Um, community it was a different kind of um discipline system it was a different kind of everything but the kids you could always always see a smile on it didn't take much they would smile and they'd want to hang out and talk and they thought it was hilarious anytime we tried to speak pashtu to them they thought it was hilarious <laughs> and they'd try to correct us especially me right? i'd come out and i'd try to get rid of the try to push the kids back off of our vehicle and uh i'm kind of, i'm a nice guy i guess i I would come out and I would try to speak Pashtu and tell them to go away and this is dangerous. Go somewhere else, right? And they would start correcting me <laughs> on my Pashtu. And I'd be like, Friggin thanks, man. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it uh, there were there were some moments there that were really really nice. Um, but it was there was a hard tour and it was a lot of work. <laughs> we, uh, I, I myself, I was on the QRF team for five months out of the eight that I was there. So a lot of my time was spent kind of like a firefighter, you know, you're just sitting there waiting for the call and, you know, you're cleaning your weapons, you're getting your stuff ready, you're making sure everything's good to go, the vehicle's all ready, everything's good to go, and you get a call. IED, QRF, out the door we go. And 
you got to run into, again, somebody else's worst day. <laughs> and especially with the combat engineers, that means we're walking into minefields, other IEDs, secondaries, tertiaries, where it's a, it's a different, slightly different ballgame. But yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the compassionate part and the, the really nice part was watching the Afghans working with each other especially the kids. They had a blast. Of course, they would also start fights at a drop of a hat, right? <laughs> it would, uh, wouldn't take much. You know, a cold water bottle would start a brawl between six or seven kids who all want it. And then, but I did see, you know, the old, um, uh, the, from the old cartoons where you'd have a bunch of characters all fighting, it'd just be this, this big dust ball. Yes. And then one, per, one character would like slide out the bottom and kind of take off. I did see something like that happen. Um, we had tossed out a cold water bottle to one of the kids. Another kid came up, punched that kid in the face, <laughs> took the water bottle, and then that guy got swarmed by like four or five kids, and they were all just like this big old tussle. And the first kid who had uh, we had tossed the bottle to, like snuck on over, reached in, grabbed the water bottle from underneath the fight, and took off. <laughs> and I was like, "Good job, little man. Well done." Yeah, it was. Uh, so there, there were some some really nice points to it. Um, it's a hard country and uh, very, very different than life here. That's for sure. So I want to get to your transition out. But before we do, I mean, you talked about being on the QRF. We talked about, you know, obviously detonation of IEDs. What were some of the the incidents that happened when you were wearing the uniform that you carried once you transitioned out? Uh, there were a few. Um, we had, uh, we lost a number of, people on that tour and uh we lost three guys from our squadron we had uh, our uh, echo 21 bravo they got uh they hit a, a really large id more than likely set up for one of our tanks um and it uh it tossed the turret out of the lav like <laughs> it, it was a, a big shot um but we lost three of our guys of the engineer squadron there and the engineers are very it's a small group so for every battle group right there's a you know, the, the brigade sends out, you got a battalion of infantry, but you only have a squadron of engineers. So we are, we were like a hundred people, 110, 115 people, something like that. And, uh, within your troops, then you're looking at 40 some odd people. And we lost the recce element, the entire recce element in one shot. Like it was a, it was a bad day. Um, some of the other ones were, um, uh, rollovers and blasts and I, I saw a lot <laughs> so it's hard to to break down all of them one of the probably worst ones there was an American Marine convoy that was rolling uh, through our AO they decided not to tell us that they were going through our AO they were leaving Kandahar Airfield heading over to um, Helmand and they just they went in the middle of the night for some reason um, with all of their headlights on 30 plus vehicle convoy just rolling down the highway, like screaming, Hey, look who I am. Right. Like just bad. Uh, anyway, they hit an ID, uh, a big one. Uh, it launched the lead Humvee, uh, up and over and it landed on its roof, slid for a while and then turned back around facing the way it had come. And, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a rough one. I think, uh, two Marines died, two were wounded. And, uh, we got called out and that was so like, I got kicked out of my rack, you know, let's go. 
you just jump into the back of the truck. <laughs> you know, it's very similar to being a firefighter or a police officer because I just jump in the back of the uh, the lav, throw my gear on as we were driving, and then the next thing you know, the ramp would drop and you have to, okay, now what? Right? <laughs> and so the first thing was sweeping for secondaries in the dark, which is never fun or smart. Um, so we were looking for other IDs and things like that. Didn't see anything, but because the blast was so big and the, the Marines on their vehicles, they have just everything. So <laughs> we were finding, you know, blocks of C4 that hadn't gone off that had been on the truck. So we have to secure those. We found in grenades and ammunition and food and stuff and all this stuff is covered in blood. And it, it was a, it was a long day, put it uh, mildly. Once we policed up all the stuff, we made sure there wasn't any secondaries. Then we got to clear all of the road because it's still Ring Road South. That's the main thoroughfare, right? So we have to clear it. And <clears throat> we got the vehicle removed. We had the casualties taken away. Um, and at one point, the there was a whole bunch of the Marines still searching <clears throat> through the debris on the road. And uh, my section commander told me to get them off the road so we could... We were going to scrape all the debris into the hole and then refill the hole and repave the road and get it good to go. Um, so I went up to them and I was like, okay, guys, like, don't worry about the stuff. Like, clear off the road. Let us clear this off. We're going to put it in the hole. And the uh, I think it was the first sergeant or something came over and was like, we're still looking for parts of our guys. And I said, roger that. Take your time. And I turned around and told my boss same thing. And he was like, cool, we'll wait. And so we sat there and waited. And this image has stuck in my mind for a very long time um, based off the emotions I was feeling at the time too. So um, I watched this. It was weird because you know, a whole bunch of Marines, right? In their jumpsuits and <clears throat> all their uh, Coyote Brown stuff. And this one army captain, I remember she was a captain because she was wearing the, uh, her bars right on the front of her uh, uh, of her armor, but that was the best part was that she was like five foot three, maybe five foot, like she was tiny, and she was wearing the full neck armor, so it was like here with the helmet, and then the full crotch protectors and the arm brassards down. Like she looked like a little tank. She was and she was wearing these really bright blue uh, surgical gloves. She walked out to one of the Marines, bent over, picked up a finger, put it in a bag, sealed it, and then they all cleared the road. And I remember sitting there thinking like, seriously, a finger? I've been sitting here in the sun for an hour for a finger. <sighs> All right. Well, and then, you, you know, you start working. Uh, and so we cleared the rest of the stuff into the hole, filled it back in, carried it on and then left. And uh, it wasn't until later where I was like really stopping thinking, going, yeah, I think I'd spend the time looking for a finger. Right, <laughs> but in the moment, I felt really annoyed more than anything. But afterwards, I started to realize of like, yeah, yeah, spend the time, do it right, <laughs> and then. Uh, but that was that was just you know a day, and the sad part was is that wasn't even the end of my day. That was first thing. So as soon as we were done with that, um, there had been another hit that we were going to run off to. So we finished all that, got everything cleaned up, good to go, back in the truck, off we'd go to another call. And we do the same thing over there. And we do the same thing on the next one. There were one particular day I remember leaving at like, I think it was two or three in the morning at one point. And we didn't get back to base until 
the next day afternoon. And just constantly call, 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 hold up here because it's dark. You know, sit sit in the middle of nowhere, like with your guns, like, <laughs> right? And then call, 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 back to base. It was, uh, it was a long tour. <laughs> oh, it sounds absolutely brutal. And it's, it's interesting because what you're talking about with the finger, it's so easy for us to develop compassion fatigue. You know, we're so burned out. We're so hypervigilant. You know, we see such horrible shit that your bar starts to drop and drop and drop and drop. And it's only in reflection that you go, yeah, you know, I, I get it now. Yeah. It, uh, I think I, I was probably fatigued to compassion after about a week or two. Like we, <laughs> it was, we were getting called to, um, you know, civilians hitting IEDs. We were getting called to, uh, but that also, so I did five months out of the eight months and the, the rest of the time when I wasn't on QRF, we were patrolling. So we were just like, it wasn't that I got time off. It was the fact that we were just doing other stuff. Um, at one point we had to do a, a BDA. Um, the, uh, the Taliban had come up into our position in Massengar and tried to cut through the fence and tried to come up to one of our OPs. They got spotted. They got engaged. Um, they started running away and there happened to be an F-16 flying around. And so we were like, yo, uh, I didn't do that. Obviously <laughs> I was just, I remember waking up to hearing uh gunfire going, Oh, I guess it's, it's on. And then hearing bombs drop. And then, <clears throat> so this uh, guy dropped four 500 pound bombs trying to get these guys that were running away. And then we went out to do the BDA, which is the battle damage assessment afterwards. And me and my my section commander were roaming around, you know, oh, look, here's a leg. Oh, look, here's an arm. Oh, look, here's a, you know. <laughs> and uh, at one point, we started realizing that we had more femurs than people. And we were like, wait a second. I was trying to do the mask one. But there were, there were four guys that ran away. Why do we have 10 femurs? And we were still finding stuff. And we were like, this, like, this is starting to not make sense. Up until we got to near where some of the the second, the sorry, the third and fourth bombs were dropped, was uh, <laughs> the Taliban had, or the insurgents had run through uh, a graveyard. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> there were extra people that were being blown up into these things, so it was very hard for us to manage. You know, know how many people there were. Also, by the time we got out there. The Afghans had, like, from the village, had already come out and started burying people and parts of people because they got to be in the ground within 24 hours of of death, right? So that uh, made it even more. The yeah, there was you know randomly we found we found a torso and we we're like, okay, cool, and it had been wrapped up in rags, but because it had been wrapped up in rags, we we're like, well, it could be booby trapped. So I guess we got to check it <laughs> and. Uh, Luckily, I looked at my section commander and I was like, I am not qualified for this. So have fun, man. <laughs> and I just sat there. So I jumped up uh, on my machine gun and just sat there and watched two Afghans like give me the evil eye, straight up stare me down as my section commander defiled a body, right? That they had already wrapped up, but we can't be sure of that. So we had to make, we had to be sure that it wasn't booby trapped. Again, more images of things that just will never leave my brain, but I don't need to tell you guys what it's like. <laughs> but it's important it was, that we hear this, though. Not, you know, not that you have a lust for the graphic nature of what 
a, you know, a member of the military or first responder sees. But if we keep that from the public, then all they ever see is jet skis and rock music and recruitment videos. Yeah. And they never see, they never put two and two together that that person was decapitated on national television was one of those kids that answered the call to the rock, you know, the jet skis and the rock music. So we have to pull that ugly side in as well. For me, my personal, you know, um, perspective of this is so we only send our children to war when yeah. it is completely unavoidable and not when some you know business is going to make billions because we're back in country x dropping bongs and you know sending yeah. rounds down range again yeah that's uh that's, that's unfortunately part of it you're absolutely right and i i did i wanted to make sure that i was as open and honest about my experience as possible because I watched my granddad who was uh, um, a veteran from World War II as he was also a combat engineer and um, he he let all of that pain and all of that stuff fester for 70 plus years and it wasn't until I came back from Afghanistan where him and I had a little sit down and we had a little nod and a chat and you know and um, all that, you know, just a little bit of that weight I saw come off his shoulders. So, um, but yes, unfortunately, um, when you're, when you're dealing with bodies, uh, or parts of bodies, it is a, it's a very distinct smell first off. And, uh, especially when there's anything to do with explosives, when you have to deal with fire and, um, it is a very interesting kind of a sickly, almost sweet smell. And, uh, yeah, when you're you become very dissociated from it very quickly, right? You start to go, okay, well, yeah, this is you got you got you're looking at your friend's one, like you got the left one. Is that the left hand? Is white? No, it's got a line down it. Oh, okay, so this is somebody else's arm, right? <laughs> and it uh, it becomes very matter of fact. This is just your day, and that you know, unfortunately, that was a lot of it when you're, especially with explosives, man. I mean. Um, when you're dealing with things that I think a lot of people have this <laughs> mythical idea of what explosives do, <laughs> right? They, you know, they see it on movies and these fireballs and which my military training ruined movies for me in general, because anything with a fireball was not an explosion. <laughs> it's just burning. Um, but you're talking like C4 has a velocity of detonation. I think of somewhere around like 7,000 feet per second meters per second i'm not i'm not 100 sure it's been a while since i've done the calcs but um it's ridiculously fast but it's basically at its very core element it is a um it's an expansion of gas at a very high rate what that does to a body <laughs> is the pressure wave passes through it first and that can if it's close enough basically it'll liquefy your innards and uh but the outside shell can usually withstand the initial blast. But at weak points, you know, joints, <laughs> things like that, things start to separate. So you'll get, you know, explosive amputations and things like that where you're, you're going to lose limbs from the main body. You're going to lose all kinds of stuff. But that is a, you know, depending on your, how close you are to things will depend on how affected that blast wave is upon you. Um, if you're right close, yeah, your, your body's going to like... <laughs> go into all kinds of different places in all kinds of different ways. Um, and it, 
also Afghanistan is very dirty. So even if you do survive a blast, you're going to lose a lot of the flesh that's uh, still attached because of all of the bacteria and fecal matter and stuff that's just in the air. It's in the dust. It's in everything. That reminds me of another, the other part of Afghanistan that most people forget is the dust. It is um, it's a very fine, especially southern Afghanistan, it's very fine. It's almost like talcum powder, baby powder, super fine stuff. And so any disturbance of the earth, you get, you get these puffs of smoke uh, or of dust coming off of everything and then resettling. So if you are inside of that cloud, you just get caked with talcum powder and all the sweat it just adheres to and then you're immediately dirty it gets in everywhere and it is uh it is a consistent challenge <laughs> throughout your day trying to deal with the friggin sand that is that is that area it's friggin yeah it's a rough one <laughs> but yeah there um as per the the negative side of it i guess kind of the funny side kind of the negative side of it in terms of you know just dealing with explosives on a regular basis is you stop really caring right <laughs> you stop really caring about um the rest of it because everything else seems superfluous to it and what i mean by that is like at one point i had my i would roll up my sleeves because it was hot right so i'd give myself a couple of rolls to up to the elbow and my sergeant would be like, you need to keep your sleeves down. Your, your, uh, your shirt is fire retardant. And I was like, dude, if I get hit by an IED and I have to worry about flame <laughs> on my, on my forearms, I have bigger problems, right? It doesn't matter. And, but unfortunately it leads to that complacency of like, the only thing I'm worried about right now is, I'm either right or it's not my problem anymore. Which <laughs> leads to a bunch of other issues on top of like later on. Um, because you know, when you're on patrol and I'm in front of the entire infantry platoon that's behind me, every single one of their lives is based on what I'm doing with my metal detector across the board. So the worst thing that can possibly happen is not me stepping on an IED. <laughs> it's actually missing an IED and having someone behind me step on it, right? I don't care if I get taken out by a sniper. I don't care if I walk around the corner and get lit up by a machine gun. I don't care about stepping on an IED myself. I need to make sure that no one else does. But because of that, my life becomes whatever, right? Which then leads afterwards, once you get, uh, once you get out of the military, that's a, a really heavy effect on I think a lot of us is because we, we put ourselves second to everything else. What do you do after when there's no team around you to, uh, to give to, you know what I mean? So the transition is obviously extremely jarring for, as we discussed, anyone who was part of a community, part of a tribe, had a sense of purpose, um, and then they find themselves on the outside. So for your journey, what was it that made you decide to transition out of the military? And then what was that experience like for you personally? Uh, well, that's uh, it's quite the story, actually. So the, um, the reason I got out of the army was 
uh, I wasn't going back on tour. First off, that was the first one. Uh, so after I got back from the first tour, um, or my only tour, I got back and, uh, very, very early on, it was made very clear to me that, um, no one really cared. Right. So, uh, I'll give you an example. The in between, uh, post deployment leave and when you return. So you get home, uh, and you have to go to work for three days. So you show up in your uniform, you know, just like a regular everyday, uh, <laughs> you know, day job. You show up, you kind of report in, Hey, I'm here, do some admin work, some paperwork, stuff like that. And then yeah, you go on post deployment leave and you get some time off and you get to hang out. And, um, my first day back, we get called into our new warrant officer's uh, office and we get told specifically, and I'm quoting here, <laughs> uh, you guys may think you're all hot shit coming back from tour, but you're still piece of shit sprogs. Go down to the bay, shut the fuck up, and don't talk about anything. That is amazing kindness and compassion. So that must have made transition really easy. Am I right? <laughs> for uh, For my two buddies that were with me, hundred percent. They were like, cool, I'm done. <laughs> Peace out. Um, and I thought, you know, okay, maybe this guy's just a dick, right? Okay, cool. I'll, I'll go down to the bay and I'll do my stuff. And I was ex- like, I was expecting, Hey, we're going to have to go back again. Like this isn't the rotation is still happening. Like two CRs there right now. We're going to be training up this year. We're going to be going back the next year, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and because I got. I had some computer skills, like I could use Excel. Basically, <laughs> I, uh, I got put as a a troop clerk, and then because I was good at that, I got moved into the intelligence cell within my unit, and uh, I stayed there for a year and a half, and just begging, chomping at the bit to get back out into the field to get back with the guys, and uh, eventually I made it back out. Was scheduled for tour. And uh, I was all excited, but they were like, hey, unfortunately, your contract's coming to end. Do you want to extend it? And then you're, you're already slotted for tours, so you don't have to worry about that. You extend, make your extension, and you're good to go. So I signed for a three-year extension. And uh, a couple of weeks later, my, my name came off the list <laughs> of people going on tour. And uh, so I was a little annoyed, as you can imagine. And uh, I, started, I, got, I started getting bitter. Started getting angry. Started getting. Uh... Now I had been getting angry and bitter beforehand, but I had thought that that was just, you know, being there. So I started looking at uh, releasing. Started getting out. Started looking at getting out. And a friend of mine was like, "Hey, man, I got this great spot out in Meaford, Ontario. You can come out and be an instructor. And it's lots of fun. It's a great time. It's away from the unit. You'll get a break. You'll be good to go." Um. So I was like, okay, cool. Let's do some posting. Talked to my chain of command, got the posting set up, and um, headed off to Meaford, Ontario to teach recruits, you know, how to soldier, which was super fun. And I had a blast there. And this is where it was actually a benefit because I had about two years left in my contract when I got there. And I was like, okay, this is pretty good. And I was the only guy qualified to do any sort of munitions disposal on base. So I got a, 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 like a range control phone and they were calling me every day. Hey, we found something. You want to come blow it up? Like, yeah. Yeah, I do actually. <laughs> cool. 
Um, no problem. And that happened almost daily. So I was doing more demo in you know two years at uh, in Meaford than I did it in six years in at uh, at the engineer regiment. It was kind of crazy. Uh, but as my time was coming up, I was not sleeping well. I was angry all the time, which I had again attributed just to the old unit and being like, "Oh well, they're a bunch of dicks." So makes sense that I would not want to be there. Uh, but yeah, I started not sleeping well, and I started. Uh, I can't say I started not sleeping well. I started to recognize that I wasn't sleeping well, but it was in a place that I was enjoying being. Right, I was surrounded by friends. I was doing good work. I had an actual mission or purpose, but I still wasn't sleeping, and I still was getting angry really fast, and it was still. It was a lot. So I was talking to my wife and I was like, you know, I'm just, maybe I'm not sleeping. Or maybe it's like, uh, maybe it's the bed. Maybe it's the fact that I'm, you know, away from you. And that's what the posting was called uh, IR. It's imposed restrictions. So my wife stayed in Edmonton and I flew to Meaford. So I was there for a year and a half by myself or a year and three quarters. Um, but she was like, well, maybe it's, maybe it's just a sleep issue. Like maybe it's sleep apnea or something that you don't recognize. Go to the docks. Ask. See what's going on. And so uh, I went into the docks and I was like, hey, um, I'm not sleeping very well. Is there someone I can talk to? And they were like, yeah, sure, hold on. They put me in an office and uh, I went and talked to the guy and he started asking me a bunch of questions, right? Like, how are you doing? Uh, do you ever have nightmares? Do you ever find yourself restless? Do you ever drink a lot? Do you ever, you know, all the, the questions that I didn't really even think about at the time. But I was like, yeah, I barely sleep. Like I was on maybe four hours of sleep a night, just in between. And it was all broken up too. It wasn't ever any solid sleep. And I would do my work on my job all week. And then on uh, Fridays, Saturdays when I'd get off, I'd sleep for like 18 hours. Like my body would just shut down. I'd wake up and I'd do it all over again. <laughs> and so it uh, it wasn't very conducive to being healthy, but is what it is. Talked to the docs. They eventually gave me a um, a diagnosis. They were like, "Yeah, post traumatic stress. Um, looks like you're also major depressive disorder <laughs> as well as uh, you have an anxiety disorder as well." And I was like, "Cool. What does that mean?" And they're like. Nothing. Keep working. We're gonna. You and I are gonna sit down. We'll have chats and um, and that. I was like, oh, okay. I guess like it's <laughs> a lot of letters okay. for nothing, right? And uh, cool. So yeah, I started talking with the psych, not the psychologist, psychiatrist. That was uh, on base every once in a while. You know, every week, two weeks, kind of thing. He prescribed some medication to help me sleep, which made me super lethargic, I guess. Like I just, I, it would, it would let me sleep, but I'd wake up and I'd be super like groggy and hazy and I couldn't really focus on anything. It's hard to teach recruits when you can't really focus on anything. So I stopped, I told him I wasn't taking that. And, uh, as my release came up, I had about two months before my contract ended and I started to think like, maybe I, should I be doing something like is there any paperwork I need to fill out or do I just like walk up to the front gate, drop all my gear and like, see you guys later. <laughs> right. Um, so I went to my adjutant, my adjutant's office and I was like, Hey, sir, you know, I got two months left my contract. Should I be 
is there anything I need to do? Is there any paperwork I need to fill out? And he goes, oh, um, yeah, come back tomorrow. <laughs> okay, right to that, sir. So spun out, went back the next day, and uh, he pushed a piece of paper across the uh, thing that was a offer for a 17-year contract to stay in. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> no, thanks very much. And I just signed <laughs> off. I'm like, no, no, I'm good. I'm done. And he goes, are you, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, you're already slotted. You're on your sergeant's course next next year. You're, uh, the career manager is put it forward. You're going to be the engineer sergeant here on base when you come back next spring. And I was like, so the offer to put me to keep me in the military is to send me to Gagetown in New Brunswick, which is basically a base built on a swamp for six months. No, <laughs> I'm good. Thanks, man. I'm going home. Um, and so at that point, it was a flurry of activity. Like it's supposed to be a six month process of getting out of the military. <laughs> All of a sudden, they're just like, you know, trying to catch up to their own feet. Um, I got really lucky though because <clears throat> I was the only one releasing on base. I would there was one um, Veterans Affairs liaison there, so I walked in and I was like, "Hey, I'm getting out in two months." And she was like, "Oh, okay, sign this, sign this, sign this, sign this, sign," and just like paperwork, paperwork, paperwork. And it was hitting me with uh, basically a claim for everything. She's like, "We don't have time to actually go through all this, so." We're just going to apply for everything and see what sticks. I was like, cool. Sounds good. All right. Uh, went and saw the docs for my final medical and went through that. And I had been given some advice from one of my um, buddies who had gotten out. And he was like, be 100% honest. I don't care if you have a hangnail. Make sure that's on the paperwork when you leave the military. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I was 100% honest. And I, uh, the doctor at the end of it, he was just like, how are you even walking? <laughs> you know, one foot in front of the other, you just keep going. But I had like um, dislocated both my knees multiple times, strains on my ACL, MCL, LCL. I got, uh, I had shoulder surgery for a separated shoulder at one point. They found a bunch of torn ligaments in that shoulder. <laughs> this one's got a bunch of shoulder, like my back got herniated disc in my back, um, plus my hearing, plus my, like all this other stuff. And, uh, the, the the docs were just surprised that I was working. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of my stuff got not only pushed through the VA system, but it was getting approved right away because it was, everyone was like, oh my God, it's a big hectic mess. So I went from exiting out of the army, which was in December, December 13th, 2013. And uh, I had about, I think it was maybe a week, maybe two weeks worth of a pay gap, which was at the time unheard of. I'm just going to put a blanket on my toes. It's cold down here. Um, <laughs> I'm sweating my ass off. I've been cutting grass in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice outside, but this, uh, the basement I'm in is like, uh, it's really pretty well insulated. So it's like cool, which is nice in the summer, but <laughs> not right now when I'm wearing shorts and it's cold. <laughs> the, uh, but, so I got uh yeah, quick little gap in pay and my great idea. This is uh an amazing idea I had was to get my wife to fly out because she has family in Montreal to fly out to Montreal. I would drive to there, pick her up, and we would drive home. Um and I had while I was uh 
well as in Meaford, uh, we had, uh, my wife had I given birth to our, to our first son. So I was all excited. I get to see the baby. This is like, I saw him when he was born and then uh, I took some parental leave or some uh, paternal leave, but had to go back to work. Right. So I, when I left, there was this little baby. And when I picked him up in Montreal, there was this five month old baby, <laughs> very different, uh, uh, way to deal with things. But then I decided that since we were going to drive all the way back to Alberta. So those that don't know, um, it is a 3000 kilometer trip with a five month old baby <laughs> and a truck full of stuff and, uh, and a wife that I have not been living with for, you know, a while. And, uh, it, it was the fact that we survived the fact that we didn't kill each other and are still married <laughs> today is a testament to, uh, um, perseverance on that because man we were it was not a good plan and especially for me with all of the stuff that i was going through and all the <laughs> trying to i was also masquerade burls that's who i was right there was no ifs ands and buts about it if i said something recruits went wherever i needed to them right like it was just instant um obedience and a five-month-old is not <laughs> it doesn't obedient. care about rank <laughs> <laughs> no not at all so it, uh, it was, a, that was a, a really big challenge. And then I got home and it went, uh, got back to Edmonton and it went kind of sideways from there. Um, I went to the OSI clinic here in, in town and it, uh, well, I saw the doctor that the army had told me to go see, right? Because I was still very army mode. They said, go see this guy. I said, okay, cool. And, uh. I would see him every week on a Friday in a mall that was in a, uh, an area of town that is hmm, ethnic, uh, ethnocentric, I guess. Like it, it, it has a high population of Middle Eastern people and having, you know, issues with being in crowds. I walked into a mall <laughs> full of Middle Eastern people at the time. And I was like really agitated just getting there. And then I'd go in for the session and he would walk me through some of the worst times from tour over and over and over and over. Um, and so over the span of a year, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then um, I was, yeah, it was really bad. Got to a point where I was, I was suicidal. A um, couple of times I remember just sitting there staring at my pistol and like reading the serial number over and over and over and just thinking about all of the different ways of like how much pain I cause people right now might be assuaged in a while if I were around it'd be so much easier that way never did it but uh, came close a couple times and it was a kind of an awakening moment because <clears throat> I walked into a room one day and my son was young. He was probably maybe a year old, something like that. And uh, just me walking into the room, he flinched like he, he, as, as he, uh, as I walked into the room and I was like, that's not, <laughs> that's not okay. This is not, this is not the way to have a relationship with my son. Um, and so I was like, I got to do something different. And I was talking to a friend of mine and I was like, you know, this doctor is just not, it's not good. And I, I'm getting worse and everything's getting bad. And he's like, you do know you can see whoever you want, right? 
And <laughs> it took me a second. I was like, no, this is the guy they sent me to. I thought this was who I go to. And they're like, no, man. Like, you can literally go see anybody you want and the VO will cover it. And I was like, oh. Oh. Um, so I immediately started looking for uh, trauma specialists and people that, you know, actually deal with it. Um, found my doctor, who I still use today. Uh, kind of a fluke actually it was one of the first things that popped up on the google search for trauma specialist and it said trauma specialty equine therapy and i was like that seems like a win <laughs> that seems like a win the talk therapy um, does not seem to be working so especially yeah. in a in a densely populated middle eastern part of town who i'm sure are <sighs> yeah. populated with amazing people but are probably reminding you of the not so amazing people you used to work against yes exactly and it was a uh so it was uh, that whole debacle. It was actually kind of funny. I remember at about six months of seeing this guy where one of my triggers was when my son would scream at a really high pitch, right? Which kids do. And uh, <laughs> at, it was about six months in, I realized that he continually would check his notes to make sure that he could same like he would be like and so his name his uh your your son is uh oh right arden arden yes okay and i was like i talk about him every week man like, like every week and you don't know his name yet like i don't know if you're really paying attention anyway i uh, started seeing my new doc and started getting an equine therapy and i just immediately made like massive leaps in recovery um and it, it, uh, A, because my psychologist started challenging me on stuff, because I would say stuff, um, you know, to make really absolute statements, you know, civilians are garbage. She'd be like, really? Are they? And I'm like, yeah, 100%. She's like, but your wife's a civilian. I'm like, well, I mean, she's okay. And she's your like, well, well, what about me? My baby's <laughs> a civilian. I'm like, yeah, he's pretty cool too, right? And so every time I made a statement like that, she would challenge me. And every time I would make, progress she would challenge me and so it was this continual like prod 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 but it wasn't and it wasn't a um just a oh yeah okay you're good just however you're feeling is all right it was you can do better you can do better you can do better and i was like you know what i can do better so <laughs> then we and uh you know working with the horses especially that was um uh, it was the the tipping point, I think, between everything where I started to actually recover a little bit. And it was, uh, yeah, I used to work with this big horse named Dante, and he was um, kind of perfect, too, because he had a big white cross on his forehead, which <laughs> I thought was kind of hilarious. And uh, he used to push me around. I'd be, like, uh, brushing him off or getting him cleaned up, and, you know, picking at his uh, hooves and stuff like that. And he would just lean on me as horses do. And, uh, but he would never let me get away from the moment. So while I was doing all this stuff, this is the great thing about equine therapy is while you do things with the horse around the horse, you start talking about, you know, the, the issues that you're having, talk about your feelings and horses innately sense how you're feeling. They can actually pick up on all of the, um, the biorhythms, right? And the way your heart's beating, how, how quickly you're breathing, all that stuff. And so if you start falling into a memory and you start 
experiencing it like it's happening all of a sudden, the horses are going to, they're going to do stuff. They're going to move quickly. They're going to like lean on you. They're going to bite at your elbow. They're going to knock you in the head with their head, right? They're going to do something to be like, what's wrong? Because they work as a team, right? So when you enter into that environment inside a group of horses, you're just automatically adopted as part of that team. If the horses aren't running away from you, you're part of the crew. So when you start to get agitated, they're growing like, uh-oh, something's wrong. And they start looking around like, what's going on? And then they find out, that, oh, it's just you. Oh, it's just you. Okay, maybe you should do something about that, right? <laughs> and then the other. <laughs> then you got to work your way through the feelings. Or, um, I mean, there's been days where I've been really agitated and I go out to the horses and they immediately scatter and I go, oh, right. And you got to take a moment. Bring your uh, your rhythms down, bring everything down nice and soft, and the horses come back. And then you can work, and then you can continue. But it's that immediate feedback. Even before you realize that you're getting agitated, the horses know. And then you know, because they'll tell you. <laughs> so, have yeah, it's good times. Have you ever heard of a man, Buck Branneman? Oh, yeah. So I had Buck on the show. I actually went and really? watched him. Yeah, it's, it's further That's back awesome. now. I'm redoing my website because I want... The, the, I didn't realize, but iTunes and all those, they only hold your most recent 500. But when you've got oh. almost 800, that's kind of shit because people are missing, you know, 300 amazing yeah. episodes. So um, so I'm kind of redoing it and going back and putting in transcripts. It's going to take me a long, long time but because I want people mm-hmm. to discover these. But I went to Georgia, watched him do a clinic, sat with him and did half an interview, kind of like we did with today. If people listening, mm-hmm. we had to do two sections because I want to make sure that we, you know, got the whole story. Um, and then it, a few weeks went by and then we finished it off how we're doing it now through Zoom. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing because like I said, I grew up as a little boy. So when you're a child around horses, as you know, you're almost aware of your energy more because these are fucking huge creatures when you're six, you know, and I was very small when I got kicked across the yeah. stable. So I, I learned fast, you know, to, yep. for example, not be in the back of a horse and my, my sister's clipping it. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but the, the, basically the, the whole, when you pull out, um, Buck's story, the horse, or you could argue even the, the, the canine, the dog, they're a mirror to how you're doing, but especially the horse that like you said that you've got that prey element as well. So, I mean, you just, and you illustrated it perfectly when you see the way that your horse reacts to you in almost in a way that that one year old, beautiful little boy reacts to you that's holding up a mirror to like you're not okay and which is the same thing i think that we we have this thing like oh it's your tribe you know chance ask your friends in you know eod or the engineers how am i doing like, oh you're fine well yeah because they've yeah. also seen horrible shit and got blown up multiple times that's the wrong person to ask but you ask your wife or your children how you know is there, do you see anything wrong? How are we doing? Well, dad, you kind of scare me a little bit. You're always angry. Okay. Now that's that mirror again. So if people that yeah. aren't around horses, our family are another good example. But when you're deep in that hole, you can't, you have no concept of what your baseline even is. So in, you know, in our experience, a horse is such a beautiful way of not only identifying where you're at, but a barometer of how to get to back to where you actually need to be. Hundred percent, and the um, the connections that you can make through the horse is um, it's unbelievable because they are one hundred, as you said, they're a mirror, no doubt about it. 
you know, dealing with family or, um, you know, kids or anything like that is that there's still a perceived bias there, right? Even if, you know, I could have a really bad day and I could, I could talk to my wife and be like, you know, hey, how am I doing today? And she'd be like, not well. Like, okay. But there's, there's an innate human interaction in that, right? Because it becomes words and interpretations and how am I feeling in that moment? How is she feeling in that moment? There's a lot of that stuff. Um, whereas with a horse, it is, I think, probably the maybe the clearest mirror. Let's put it that way. Um, because they can't abide distrust in the unit, right? So they can't have a horse inside the herd that is constantly freaking out. Because if it is, then everybody's on guard. And if the whole herd is constantly on guard, nobody eats, nobody sleeps, nobody like it. There's a, the system breaks down. This sounds exactly like COVID-19. Right. And uh, (laughs) the sad part is, is that there are times where, you know, a horse will get kicked out of the herd. And it's a hard lesson because sometimes it's a young horse and they got to like, that colt gets booted out to the side and not allowed to hang out with everybody else. But they learn very quickly that it's because their actions and their state of being is not aligning with everybody else. And so they bring their energy down. They stop kicking it. They stop biting at other horses. They stop doing all the things that makes everyone else mad. And then they're just welcomed back to the herd again. It's an, it's an instant, oh, okay, everything's cool. Right? There's no, you know, memories of, well, you bit me last week and I don't like you because, no, it doesn't matter. Right? That was then. This is now. Right here. And that's what they're so, why they're so clear is because it's always in this moment. Right now. I put a, post out on social media last night. I was riding home <clears throat> and uh, had this really beautiful sunset. And I was on my bike and I could have just been like, oh, wow, that's a nice sunset and kept riding home. But I stopped and I took a second and I watched the clouds kind of like, you know, slide past um, the sky and the way the colors lit it up. And it was it was just a really gorgeous spot, a uh, spot of a moment. And I realized that that, that's that's all day that's every day that's your whole life right in this moment that this is your whole life right now and horses live like that all the time so if you get a chance to work with horses and do some equine therapy it reattaches you to that rather than being you know i have to get this 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 and this stuff done right in the future or, or all these things happened to me in the past none of that's none of that matters it's all right here right now so if you can regulate right now then everybody's good if you can't curb buddy <laughs> go from there well there's such a so, powerful takeaway from that as well like i said the last now three years you know ultimately it's what is best for the entire herd the entire tribe and what we're seeing now so often is division and splitting yeah. and fragmentation and if people can just refine their true north, you know, you know, your your concern for your one year old child, them mm-hmm. being protected, them clothed, them fed, them, you know, not too hot, not too cold. I mean, these are the basal things that I would say almost all of us hold nearest and dearest. And that is the tribal, that is the the, the herd mentality. And in a positive way, it's like, well, we, you know, we're a community. We want to take care of each other. It takes a village. But 
if you're that person that now all you care about is, is a horse racing as fast as you yeah. can and you're separating it from its herd and you just want it to go until you, you know, ride it till it's done, then you send it off to the glue factory. That's the polar opposite of what we're talking about. And if we're not careful, we're not even going to have a semblance of what a herd is anymore, what a community is. And everyone's too hype, you know, triggered and, you know, um, what's the word? Offended. And they forget that we're all actually sharing 90% commonalities. And then you look at your differences and go, well, that's really cool. Oh, you're from this country? Oh, that's interesting music. I like, you know what I mean? But until we stop pigeonholing and dividing, we're going to miss the very lessons that are there in nature like for you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years and we disregard it for this you know these mouthpieces that we have at the moment so if ever there should have been a coming together it was the last three years so when we listen to what you you know how you describe the the selfless protection of a herd in nature that's what we need to refine yeah i agree the um <clears throat> it's kind of funny i was telling my my five-year-old my little guy today um he's a little sick and we we're trying to get him dressed and he was just not having it he was just sitting there everything we did he would just scream in my face and i would i had to you know keep it calm <laughs> i didn't last that long but uh at one point i looked at him like kinley babies cry and they scream because they don't know how to communicate they can't tell us what's wrong they can just scream and cry you can talk. You can speak to me. You can tell me what the problem is. If you're having trouble getting there, we're going to breathe together and we're going to calm down. And then you can tell me what's wrong. And he would just kind of like, and he was, kept crying for a little bit, but then he calmed down and I was like, okay, hey, look, you need to get underwear on. <laughs> this, is a, this is a basic, this is the start of the day. We're going to get underwear on, we're going to get clothes on, we're going to get our stuff on, and we're going to breathe as we do it and just slowly got his stuff on. And then once he was totally calm, and I was like, okay, what is what is the problem? And he's like, I didn't really want to wake up. And I was like, well. <laughs> you like, and me both, buddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I felt the same way when I woke up at six this morning. Thanks, bud. And, uh, but the point was is that, unfortunately, I think we've gotten away from the ability to actually communicate. And this is, this is where the problem is, because it's really easy to just scream and yell. It's really easy to do that. It's more challenging to communicate how you feel it's more challenging to communicate who you are as a person and the more we do it the better we get at it right it's practice like anything else just like regulation just like being able to go into a crazy environment and being calm the neat part is and i think this is the thing that most people don't realize is that again being gregarious by nature as humans are we pick up on the energy around us and so i'm sure Anybody listening, and I'm sure yourself, could probably attest to this. If you're in a really hectic situation and people start panicking, right, and things are starting to go wrong, and this isn't working, da, 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 and everyone's starting to spin, and then one person walks in who's totally calm and goes, grab the hose. You set that up. You go over there. Take care of those people. And the whole room changes, right? Everything stops. Or you could be in a very calm room and have one person come in and just... <clears throat> flip around and just start freaking out. And if you're not able to regulate, people's energy are going to start coming up again. So that's something that we all need to be aware of too, because we are gregarious by nature. We will pick up on what's going on in the room. And then it's up to us to make the decision on how we react to that. And so 
sure, somebody could say something offensive to me. I actually worked with a guy who was a Holocaust denier. And I was, I'm being Jewish. I was like, no, <laughs> that's not okay. But I sat there and had a conversation with him. At the end of it, I thought he was an idiot. <laughs> but I, he, it didn't make any sense what he was saying, but I wasn't upset about it. Whereas, you know, years ago, I would have been. I would have been upset. I would have been like, you ready to throw down right now? Because I will beat your ass and I'll tell you what's going to happen. But I, I don't need to do that anymore. Like, it doesn't make any sense to do that. <laughs> and, and the ability to communicate, the ability to actually regulate your own emotions and then talk to people is how we get out of that fractious, divisive, well, you said, and he said, and that person did these things, and da-da-da-da, cool. That was then. We're here right now. Let's talk about it. And <laughs> I know it sounds easy, but <laughs> it's probably one of the hardest things to do out there, at least in my mind, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a challenging challenging situation to be in i guess <laughs> yeah well i think one of the problems and i've talked about this a lot the holy grail of communication is held as the debate and i have never watched a debate where i've come away going oh now i've changed the way i think thanks person who changed my mind <laughs> no i just ends up being two assholes arguing with each other trying to show who's right so this is the problem is our gold standard is this i think the gold standard is listening shutting the fuck up and just listening to someone and then absorbing what they tell you you know if then obviously if they're also listening then you listen to them you know it goes back and forth back and forth and at the end you're like huh i never thought of it that way or you know whatever it is but as soon as it's like a a competition oh so and so won the debate did you go listen to that podcast those two debated and he he did this to them like no they both walked away the same exact fucking ding-dongs that they walked into it because if you're debating, you're not listening. You're not listening. You're trying uh, to win. So this is the thing uh, that I've yeah. found with podcasting yeah. is it's really taught me to shut up. And I, I write down things that I want to ask you because one of the worst things that we do in modern society, oh, well, i got to say something, otherwise I'm going to forget it. Yeah. Okay, well, write it down and keep listening. And then if they haven't touched that topic... Then we can circle around and, and, and talk about that. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is listening. We've got so much oh, yeah. white noise. You can't go sit in a restaurant without fucking TVs in your face and, you know, happy birthday songs being sung at every fucking table. It's just, yeah, you know, we, we've lost that ability to just sit with each other, you know, and, and yeah. maybe not even talk, just simply sit next to each other and, and be present. I think that stems from our, our inability to sit with ourselves. Right, we've we've spent a lot of time, especially in the Western world, we've taken a lot of time to, um, I guess, <laughs> kind of smooth things out. Right, we try to, you know, if make things efficient. So, you know, I want to get a coffee in the morning. Well, there's a drive-through. Right, I don't even have to get out of my car. But every ounce of effort that you put into your day, of intentional effort that you put into your day allows you to actually experience that, right? And we, we don't experience things anymore. <laughs> That's the problem is that because we don't, we're not ready to sit with ourselves to experience who we are, we can't sit with anybody else, right? That's why the phone sits on the table when you're having a conversation because what if somebody, what if somebody needs to talk to me? We are talking. <laughs> like somebody is talking to you right now. 
kind of deal. So, and I'm I'm guilty of it too. There's lots of times I've had my phone up on the table, and I'll be having a conversation with somebody, and it goes ding, and I look at it, and then I look away. But just that shows what the priority is, and it it's about being intentionally present. So now it's actually kind of funny is that if I do put my phone on the table, and I can see it ding. That's a that's a choice. Do I look at it? Do I not? <laughs> Are you Pavlov's dog or Pavlov's cat? <laughs> exactly. Do I get to make the choice or not? And then I say, well, because all this stuff happens really fast. But they are actual conscious choices. We just don't look the look at them as conscious choices. You know, if you're having a conversation with somebody and they say something that, you know, offends you or rouses you up or makes you upset or something like that. Okay, take a second, right? There's no, no, no rule stating that I have to immediately snap back at somebody and be like, well, no, you said that. No, I can sit there and think about it. You know, where does that person come from? How is this uh, applicable to what's being said? Does it actually make sense? Is it a joke? Is it not? Read the situation, right? Take a second and then engage <laughs> or don't, right? Again, these things are all... It's all choices. And that one of the biggest things I learned working with horses and through my transition is that everything is ours. Anything in our world is ours to choose whether we want to engage it or not. If we do, good, engage it. But actually engage it, intentionally engage it. If not, why is it there? Do you even need it? Not really. <laughs> right? So, uh, yeah, the big thing was ownership, intention, things like that. And I have learned a ton ever since, you know, starting up the podcast and talking to awesome people and then starting up the collective with Sean and talking to more awesome people. And the, the thing that I learned the most is that if you go into it with an intention that you're ready to learn, right, you're just, you're just there excited to converse with people, <clears throat> then everybody wins. Again, the team wins, right? Because we're all just sitting here ready to talk. It's not that I want my opinion shared. And there's been many times on my podcast where I've said very little. But there's also times that I've said a lot. And that's okay. Both sides. <laughs> so either way works. Yeah, it's good. Well, I want to circle back to, to a moment that you discussed a minute ago. And then we'll get into you know podcasting and some of the sure. amazing humans that, that we both know now. Um you are sitting there reading the serial number on your weapon and you touched mm. on something that is never mentioned in quote-unquote suicide conversations. It's never talked about on the posters or anything. But in almost 800 conversations, I realize this is a glaring common denominator. When someone who is of a species that their sole purpose is to recreate and protect that next generation takes their own life... It doesn't make any sense to someone who's healthy on the outside looking in because it literally yeah. goes against our very biology. But one thing that I've just kind of realized over these conversations is, you know, we say, oh, it's, it's so selfish, it's so cowardly. How could they think of your family? Well, when you listen, you, again, like we just talked about, when you shut up and listen to these people, whether they're, God forbid, they're in crisis or hopefully they're they're reflecting on when they were in crisis – they truly feel like a burden to the world. And 100%. they believe, and this is such a miswired, broken perspective, but this is their truth at that moment, that they, that their, their 
darling little you know baby or their husband or their wife or their parents would be better off if they were dead they brought all the pain to their family so i've kind of loaded that but you touched on it before what you know talk to me about that moment and that feeling of burden if you had that you know through your eyes it's a it comes from you know kind of who we are as you said right like we we go into these particular styles of jobs because we want to serve right we want to be part of a larger group we want to be you know cog in the wheel for lack of a better term what unfortunately where that comes from is especially for young men we get this a lot is that your ability to work what you can physically do equals your worth so if you are incapable of working so when i got released from the military i was medically released i'm i'm on a pension i'm what they'd say i can't work right they're, they're like you're done in those moments you go from being a really high functioning i'm here for the team and everybody depends on me and we're all good to go to sit on the couch and don't just just don't and when you do try you're trying from a place of anxiety you're trying from a place of depression you're trying from a place of you know you're you're just trying to do something without any real intention as to what that's going to do you just you just see somebody working and you're like oh i got i got to help right like when my back would go out and uh i'd be completely laid up on the couch and i couldn't walk and my uh, my wife would be dragging in the groceries and i would be like no i i, I can help but i'd kind of like roll myself off the couch and start crawling and she's just like no just no, lay down, stop. But to someone like us, that, that is soul crushing to watch someone else work because you don't have any worth at this point, right? And so you see somebody else struggle and work and do all the things that you should be helping with, that you should be, you should be capable of doing, should, I'm using that word specifically, um, because in our mind, if we can't do that, we are worthless. We shouldn't be here. And that now we are relying on somebody else to not, not only do their work, but to do ours. But we're still around. And that, that is one of the most aggravating and uh, deceptive views on it. Because it's really easy to get there. <laughs> it's really easy to go down that path and say, well, man, like... If I wasn't here, that would be one less dinner that they would have to make. That'd be one less, um, you know, trip to the bathroom that someone would have to help me get up from the couch and make it there. That'd be one less these, one less of these things, one whatever. And so you start to feed into yourself in that negative circle and just start going down that that path. Well, you know, if if, if I wasn't here, and this is the misnomer, this is the big thing that most I think people don't quite understand is that. When you get into that realm, you're thinking of not being there as in like a like a puff of smoke. Like you just disappear. And everybody goes, Oh, well, I guess I guess chance isn't here anymore. And you know, just carry on with their life. Um, but it's not. It's not that at all. Because not only physically, right, there's a mess. You gotta deal with the body, you gotta deal with the cleanup, you gotta deal with all of the then hugely traumatic um, incidences of finding bodies, right? Coming home to someone being gone, 
um, never seeing someone again, no answers, no thought, like all these questions, all these things. But none of that is thought about because in the moment when you're there, all you think about is just me in this moment is a burden. Therefore, if I remove the burden, problem solved, right? <laughs> it's that simple. Um, and then you start, that's where it goes down the hole is that you stop thinking about other people and it becomes all about you. And so it is, selfish isn't a great word for it, but it is a very self-centric view of life. And it's, 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 it's very difficult to get out of that. But what it takes is actually recognizing the people around you. And that if they didn't want to be there to help you, they wouldn't be, right? And so actions do speak, <laughs> actions are the key, is that you can, you know, thoughts and prayers are great, but action <laughs> is what people do. That's how people prioritize things. If someone wants to help you in your time of need and they are there helping you, they're there for a reason. Absolutely. Well, I think that's that's the problem in these conversations is you don't hear what you just discussed, discussed. And what I think is even more scary, and I'm just being very uh, um, caricature in the way I describe this, but for example, if you are a plumber and you get to this point, there's going to be X amount of pressure behind you pushing you down that dark, role, dark hole. Excuse me. But if you wore a uniform... And when you signed on that line, you said, I will die for a complete stranger. Mm -hmm. You've already made that deal in your head. So now you get that firefighter, that, you know, Canadian Armed Forces member at that dark place. Now you're like, huh, I'm a burden. I've come to terms with this. And I've already decided that I'll die for, you know, my best friend in Afghanistan, or I'm going to go find my friend in that structure fire that we've, that's gone missing. And now you're at that place. To me, that's, probably one of the very many compounding reasons that we lose so many people in uniform because if they truly believe that they're a burden that then is the sacrifice the very sacrifice that they signed up for and they would die for a stranger what would they do for their own wife or child or husband and this yep. is a problem so our suicide awareness campaigns to me one of the biggest things is do you feel like a burden to your family that needs to be out there in black and white because that is the common thread i want the pain to end and i was a burden of the two things that i've heard over and over and over and again and if we can pull that out the shadows and make that's what we're looking for and then you know create an environment for for us to talk about this openly and you know tell everyone hey look we want to help people are dying to help in any way um, those are the conversations, not, hey, open door, I'm always here for you, give me a call. That, that fucking doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. So we need to reframe the way and actually listen to the people that were there and take yeah. their words and put it up there. You know, the funny thing is, is that you see this in the movies actually all the time, and I, I don't think it's attributed well enough. <clears throat> you know, there's always that heroic moment in the action movies where one of the, you know, supporting characters takes a takes a shot and they're dying and the main character is like trying to drag him away and they're like leave me just leave me here let me die that kind of stuff that's exactly that mentality that's 100% it right there it is just like I do not let yourself be dragged down by me do not because I'm thinking of your safety right it's a I want you to leave me there so that you can get away. 
so that I can hold them off, so that I can do whatever, right? But again, it's still very self-centric, right? It's so that I am no longer a burden to you. And I think that having that question, are you a burden, or um, is outstanding. It is the it is the question. When you're dealing with other people, though, <laughs> this is where it gets challenging because uh, after I started to see a lot of really big growth, I immediately started going, oh, well, now I know. So now I'm going to help everybody else. (laughs) You know, being two, three years into a healing journey, I didn't know anything, but I thought I knew. And so I started diving into advocacy and I started trying to help out my brothers and sisters and I immediately trying to do work, right? I started trying to do stuff. And it led me down to some pretty, uh, some pretty cool, to some pretty cool places and I've done some pretty cool things because of it. But I was just doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, Sean and I talked about this on the collective at one point was um, external proxy, the excuse of external proxy, right? It's very easy for me to not deal with my own stuff when I'm helping somebody else. Busyness is one of the least recognized addictions. Exactly. And it is, and it's killer, man. I mean, I don't know how many times I went on leave when I was in the military and, you know, first week and you do absolutely nothing. You're like, oh, thank God. Yes, I can just relax. Super cool. Awesome. And within... I don't know, four or five days, you're like, just just give me something to do, man. Like, just, <laughs> I just I need to do something. Just like, I can't just sit here and do nothing. You're vibrating off the walls. Um, and, you know, by the end of like a three-week stint on leave, you're just, you're dying to go back to work. You just like, let me get back to doing something. And you're right, it, it will, it does lead to the point where you will burn yourself out or you will, um, you'll work yourself to the bone or you will sacrifice your own health for others <laughs> because they need it, right? They need it more. I, I used to use this terminology as if you were to walk into a fire hall or a police hall or, you know, an army barracks or whatever, and you said, okay, everybody line up. And you had everybody lined up and you go, who here deserves a medal? Everyone would point at everyone else, right? That guy, that did that dude did something awesome. You should give him a medal. And he would be like, what? No, I didn't do anything. It was that guy who jumped off the building to go to like, we're always deflecting. And so, <laughs> unfortunately, when it comes to suicide, it's the same thing. We want to deflect to everything else and we want to get rid of, we don't want to deal with our issues. So, we work more or we help other people with their issues or we, we try to be there. And I, don't, I mean, I've you know, been woken up at two o'clock in the morning to an, another friend of mine who is suicidal who just like was reaching out in that moment and in that moment i'm not gonna i am not i don't care how tired i am i don't care how sick i am i don't care how many times i woke up my wife that night i'm gonna pick up that phone and i'm gonna answer that call regardless but after doing that for months and months and months and months and months i'm not able to help people as well as i was at the beginning of it and that's the key is that there's going to be points that you have to say no, that you have to be like, hey, I'm not in the right headspace. You should call this guy. Or uh, there was actually one dude where he sent me a message and he was like, I'm, I'm really not doing well tonight. And I'm like, you know, I'm not doing well either. Do you want to have a chat? But like, I, I can't really give you any advice today. And he's like, no, man, what's going on? <laughs> and he immediately tried to assist me, right? But it's, that mentality is also of just, oh, well, my, my issues aren't that bad. I can, they can be put off to the side so I can help somebody else. When in reality, the first step, the very first step of first aid 
is self-aid, right? You have to fix yourself up until a point that somebody else can come and help. Because if you're not, then you're just laying there bleeding. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us are metaphorically laying there bleeding. Well, you hit on a, an important term. I I found this like when I first really started kind of being out there. I had a, a Facebook page called the Dark Side Project, which was collecting a lot of my friends either that were going through stuff at the time, that were you know the out the other side, that maybe had even never really struggled, and, and everyone was talking about what worked, what didn't, etc. Um, and around that time, I got a lot of those those phone calls, and you know I will always be there for for people that need to reach out. But the problem is the the people that everyone knows is the mental health person, for example, in your department, whatever it is, that's the one that gets inundated with phone calls. And what we need to realize is if we just find one person, say that 50% of the population is hurting. So the other 50 that aren't, you know, that are doing okay at the moment, we just find one buddy and we become their go-to person now you're not going to get that burnout but when one person gets hundreds of phone calls you end up you know like michael Clark, uh, excuse me michael clark duncan again you end up absorbing so much that sometimes as you said these people aren't really out of their own journey they kind of dove into serving because it does feel good and now they're starting to spiral down again so yeah. i think that's the thing is once we realize that if we just have like that group of let's say five and you all watch each other now you alleviate mm -hmm. bombarding, you know, that one peer support person or that one, you know, whoever it is, that figure that you're going to go to. Um, and that way, you know, you between the five of you, you can juggle who's having a good day, who's, who's having a bad day. And there'll always yeah. be someone that is in the right headspace for them. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and the other part of this is that we say this a lot, right? You're like, if you're going through a rough time, reach out to your buddies. And okay, Absolutely. You really should, but so should if you're if you're in a good way, reach out to your buddies, right? Just talk to people, man. Like just talk to people. It doesn't take much. Um, some of the some of the times I've had, I don't know if you'd call them interventions, but where I've caught kind of people off guard was just random text. I would I literally would sit on my phone and I'd scroll through my messenger and be like, oh, I haven't talked to that person in a while. Little, hey man, how's it going? What you up to? You know, just anything. And I've gotten responses anywhere from, oh, good man. Yeah, I'm just working, having a great time, blah, blah, blah. And we'd chat for five or 10 minutes and cool to, man, I'm really glad you messaged me. I, I was in a really dark place and I, I didn't know who to talk to. And I, I'm really, you know, I'm not doing well. And then we sat down and had like a two hour conversation. Right? Like, so it's not just on the, you can't put all of the onus on the person that's hurting. Because if they're hurting and they're in that dark place, they don't want to be a burden to somebody else. They don't want to reach out to another person and have that weight put on another person. They're already at the point where they don't want to add more weight. So reach out to each other. Talk, man. Just like speak to each other. It's really, we have this great thing called the internet. And this is something that I said on my podcast. I've said it in real life. I've done it in speaking events. We have the greatest gift that a veteran community has ever gotten and has nothing like this has ever been around for any veteran community in the history of mankind. The fact that you and I are 5,000 kilometers away <laughs> from each other having a conversation about suicide, that, that's, that's an important piece that we all have, 
right? We all have messenger. We all have a phone. We all carry it around. We can all talk to people at any point in time. Do it. Make that choice, right? Reach out to your friends and be, you know, I haven't talked to you in freaking six years. And that's the other part is time disappears once you're out of the service because you're not seeing everybody every day, right? So you're just going about your day and they're going about their day. And all of a sudden it's 10 years. And then all of a sudden it's 20. And then all of a sudden you, you don't know where they live anymore because they've moved six times. And then what, right? Back in the day, if you, that person moved and you didn't get a forwarding letter, they were just gone, right? You could never see them again. Um, hopefully you might see them at a reunion or a legion one day, that kind of thing. But now, man, I can call my buddy who I served with for eight years. I could call him right now and he would pick up the phone. <laughs> like, it's that simple and we forget it's that simple absolutely absolutely no I agree 100% and even if you've lost touch with someone the internet is great now you can search they've probably got a social media profile it's, there's you know you can you can do a little internet creeping and, and reconnect I actually did one of my closest childhood friends we lost contact and in the end I ended up going to his childhood home Sadly, he'd lost his parents. They'd both you know, passed away in the, in the kind of two or three years prior. And so they just sold the family home. The new people had moved in and I gave them my business card. They immediately sent it to, to Joe. And then by that evening, we were talking on WhatsApp. So, you know, this is a beautiful thing. If you've lost contact with someone, play Sherlock Holmes. Just challenge yourself to find them again. Mm-hmm. And re- reconnect, man. I mean, this is one of the things about especially service style industries, I guess you could call it, you know, police and fire and military and EMS is that you create these bonds that don't go away. Right. And that, you know, after 10 years, if you haven't seen them, it's going to be one of these, Hey, and you'll pick up immediately where you were, right. There's no gap in time at that. Uh, And I've seen it at reunions. I've seen it at uh, the Legion randomly seeing people that you haven't seen in forever. And you're like, what? Where have you been? How's it going? And you start, you know, you start having those conversations. You start immediately jiving each other and poking each other in the chest and <laughs> doing all that fun stuff. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we need to connect more. And I think it's it's sad that we don't utilize this tool that we have in front of us and we don't utilize it nearly enough. Absolutely. 100%. Well, you talked about the power of the internet. I've been doing this for six and a half years and, you know, as you said, have spoken to, you know, child soldiers from Sierra Leone and artists and dancers and actors and, you know, special forces soldiers. I mean, just all kinds of incredible humans through the podcast. So what made you decide to start your podcast? Tell the people listening about that and then let's talk about the collective as well. Roger. <clears throat> so um, my the podcast I started was called Tools for the Toolbox and it was... Uh, <laughs> it started because I would go for little hangouts with my buddies and, uh, you know, two, three, four guys, we'd hang out at the, at a pub and we'd get lunch and we'd have a couple beers and we'd start chatting and almost invariably. And I mean, I had a, I had a bunch of different friend groups, right? So I had groups that were, uh, military, I had groups that were civilian, I had groups that were infantry, I had groups that were police. I had group like, I'm a pretty social guy. My wife called me a, um, uh, a social butterfly at one point. I was like, what? No, me? <laughs> She's like, oh yeah. Um, so I would go and link up with some buddies here. I'd go and link up with some other buddies there, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, 
almost invariably, there was always somebody that was having an issue uh, every time we would sit down and it was sometimes it was small, right? Like, oh, I keep getting these freaking parking tickets or I keep whatever. Sometimes it was, you know, I think my wife's going to leave me. <laughs> there were some deep conversations. There were some, um, some shallow conversations, but there was always a problem. And every single time somebody always had, Oh yeah, that happened to me. This is what I did. It, it worked out for me. You should maybe you should try it. And sometimes they already had <clears throat> other times they hadn't. And I started to recognize the trend there was that this was happening every time. And I started also realizing that it was only ever happening in these little groups. It was the only time I was ever actually getting uh, these bits of in, these tidbits of information that I was able to kind of cherry pick from these conversations. Because even if it wasn't my problem, I'd be like, that's a, that's a great tip. That's a good tool, man. I got to keep that in the bank. And, uh, and then I started thinking we had this, we sat down for this one real really deep conversation and probably had too many beers because we <laughs> very in depth and uh we started talking about what it meant to be a soldier before the war during and after and did that change and how it affects how we live our lives now and you know we were all retired and just like sitting there going like what did it all mean and how did we do and um at the end of it it was a really great conversation, but at the end of it, someone stood up and like, man, we should have recorded that. That would have made a great podcast. And I was like, indeed, <laughs> indeed it would. It's <laughs> a good idea. Um, and so I started thinking like, maybe I should start recording some of these conversations. And I started, so I, you know, initially with my phone and just keeping track of, you know, hanging out with people and trying to record it and then realizing that that was not a great audio experience. <laughs> and, uh, and started evolving from there. So I started buying the equipment, started getting hooked up. I started doing audio um, podcasts with some of the friends, some of the people I know on basically anything I could think of. So, you know, my first couple episodes were like, let's talk about pain. You know, I talked to a friend of mine who's a double amputee um, above the knee. And I was like, how do you deal with pain? How do you manage pain? How do, what are you on medication? What kind of medication? How does it feel? What happens when the medication wears off? What do you do then? And so I would start mining these people for little cold nuggets of information for tools for the toolbox. And so the funny thing I came up with that terminology was because in the army, there's lots of times where you have to give context to a skill set, but it, so it doesn't really apply to what you're doing right now. But it's it's a good piece of information at, but it's part of the context of the story. And it would always be, hey, you may never, you may not need this right now, but it's a good tool for the toolbox keep it in there. And so that always stuck in my head. And I was like, Oh yeah, that would be a good tool for the toolbox. All right, cool. Anyway. Um, and so I started talking to people and then I started reaching out to more people and I started reaching out to people that I hadn't talked to in a while. And then I started, you know, who would I like to talk to about this stuff? So I started reaching out to other vets and other, you know, special forces guys. And I started reaching out to people I wanted to talk to like Dave Grossman and, you know, like <laughs> things like that, where you'd be like, Oh, cool. It'd be so awesome if I could talk to this person. Um, and that started to develop where I got, I got about three years in um, talking to all sorts of just wicked people. And um, yeah, I mean, you know this, when you get into podcasting, it's not one discipline. <laughs> it is now you're learning audio editing and you're learning audio quality and how to figure out interfaces and you're doing, then you, then I started into video and then I, that added a whole nother spectrum. Now I can, you know, edit video and I can create little intros and outros and, 
man, it becomes this, it's like six or seven disciplines in one. <laughs> so you just start going down that road and you start buying equipment and you start setting it up and you start looking at it going, does that, does that work? Does this work? Does that work? How did, how did that look? Does these things look good? And one of the problems is because I have hearing damage, <laughs> I can't really do a lot of the audio stuff, but I did my best, made sure it uh, sounded pretty good to me. And then I kind of carried on from there. During the, uh, the whole thing about with the, with tools was that I was doing one-on-one -on -one chats, you know, just for an hour and we'd talk about a particular topic and then, but I was still doing those link ups. I would still hang out with people and we'd still have these chats. And I noticed that it was an easier conversation to do as a group versus one-on-one. -on -one. Cause sometimes you can hit hard, you can hit walls where people just don't want to talk about it or, you know, they, uh, get really agitated or, uh, triggered or whatever. So it makes the flow of it very challenging to maintain. Uh, so I got into, I started something called the sheepdog round table. You know, I would invite six or seven people together and I talk about a larger topic, you know, like, um, the whole concept of, uh, mission men self. Is that an antiquated version? Like, does it not no longer necessary or how does it apply to everyday life? That kind of stuff. So we talk about it as a group. And then uh, I think I made it through six or seven of those, but they are editing heavy. <laughs> so it would take me a lot. I'd do one and it would take me, you know, weeks to get one edited through. And then I'd, and I'd have a second one ready, ready there. And I'd have multi, and I had the other podcast, uh, I had the Tools for Toolbox still going. So I was constantly editing and I realized that what I was doing was just, I was getting busier and busier and I started to fill I'd have 10 minutes. Sweet. I'm going to use that. I got 10 minutes here. I'm going to use that. I'm going to, and you start to fill all this time, but I wasn't filling it with things that were enjoyable. You know, I would sit in front of the computer and edit for three hours straight and just like <laughs> exhausted by the end of the day, but I didn't do anything. Um, and I wasn't spending time with my family and I wasn't doing stuff with them. And I started to realize that that was just not, uh, I wouldn't maintain, I couldn't maintain that the longevity of that, right? I couldn't keep doing that constantly. Um, and uh, my buddy Sean, who had been on Tools for Toolbox a couple of times, he'd been on the Sheepdog Roundtable a couple of times, and he came to me and he's like, you know, I think we really need to do something about this and figure out how to make this, utilize the internet rather than allow the internet to utilize us. So how do we do that? And I was like, well, I mean, the best thing we can do is have open, honest conversations with people. At least in my view, I think this is what we, what we really require and what we're really missing is being able to converse with one another. And he was like, that's a great idea. Um, I, you know, if you want to work with me, be ready because <laughs> I'm sure I, I, know, I, I know how to work. <laughs> right. And, uh, I was like, okay, I'll, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to keep up. I'm going to, let's, let's, let's do it. So we started, uh, January 1st of this year. <clears throat> And we've been doing a live broadcast every day since. And uh, we've talked to, again, all kinds of people, <laughs> all kinds of people, group formats, large format. I've had, uh, I think we had seven people on at one point, uh, as down to like three, down to just Sean and I, to four or five. And I mean, you've been on a couple. We It's all about the conversation. The topic is... I, I actually kind of picked them at almost at random, not quite at random, but whenever I have a thought in the car or I have a thought in the shower or I'm walking with my son and I go, I wonder why people do that. 
and I'll write it down. And then we'll just I just post you know posture it to the uh, to the group and say you know what are your thoughts on this, and let the conversation flow. And then it just kind of carries on. We start asking questions. There's uh, interaction from the guests, or not just from the guests, but from the audience. So the audience gets to interact with us as well. And I put the questions up, and um, the then the guests and us interact with the audience directly. It's such a great format and really clean, open conversations. And we always keep it. We got three rules. There's no swearing, there's uh, no politics, and there's no religion. And everything else is just stay positive. So we, not like toxic positivity, but we're we're trying to, what's the word he always uses? Um, <laughs> not motivate, uh, uh, inspire. Thank you. That is the exact word. We want to inspire people to just do better, just be better. And uh, we, so we got, <laughs> I made my mugs that say, do your best. These are going to be for sale pretty soon. <laughs> and uh, once I get them exactly perfect to how I want them. But uh, that's the, the whole key of the, the key of the show. We show up, we do our best to have a good conversation. And at the end of it, we learn something. Yeah, it, it was it was a lot of fun. I think I might have broken the swearing rule <laughs> a couple of times. It's okay. <laughs> I don't mean to. I just you know when I get oh I get about it. Something, it, but uh, but it's yeah. so hard not to swear. It has been a sheer test of will <laughs> for me not to swear consistently on that show. It is. Uh, <laughs> I think we made it the first episode, and I was just swearing left, right, and center. And at the end of it, Sean was like, "So, you know the swearing?" And I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "Let's not do that." And I was like. Okay, <laughs> I will do my best. And he was like, I bet you will. <laughs> and uh, I think I did, I think I swore once or twice after that. But it's actually been really good because I don't swear as often now in my regular life because of that discipline in that show. Um, and I know there's, like I've sworn a couple times here, but the uh, it takes it almost takes effort to do it now. You know what I mean? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, I mean, I believe how totally that you know if you use a swear word then there could be another adjective but then I also buy into the fact that sometimes the swear word is the perfect description you know yeah. so there is a happy yep. medium I don't want to be like you know just just swearing for the sake of swearing but I also don't want to limit myself that's why I have the you know explicit rating on my podcast <laughs> because this is how big boys and girls talk sometimes and it's okay for sure. you know but yeah. you know it's also as you said would you speak like that in your grandparents' house? Probably not. So the ability to be able to gate it down and take a moment and be, oh, I'm going to use different words today. You know, if I'm yeah. on someone else's podcast, I try and, you know, be a little bit more. But if they ask me about something that, you know, do, do you think that it's okay to not worry about school shootings and focus on transgender models on a Bud Light can? <laughs> I might start using expletives. <laughs> so there we go. Yeah, well, you know, it's a... Uh it's part of the language, right? And you're, as you're right, there is a balance that I think needs to be maintained. The big thing why we wanted to keep it disciplined was the fact that the information that we were gathering, the, the actual, you know, the tools that were being provided and the conversations that we were having were really, really good for everybody, right? Not just adults who were trying to go through a healing journey, but everybody, kids, teenagers, adults who have never experienced any major trauma in their lives, people who have experienced tons of trauma in their life. It didn't matter. The tools were all still relevant. And so we wanted to make it as appealing to everybody so that, you know, a 14-year-old kid could sit there and watch the collective 
and not have his parent walk into the room and out sitting there going, well, screw that. No, 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 right. There's it's clean in it's clean in general, right? So that we, um, that way everybody can enjoy it and everybody can learn from it. Everybody can grow and build from it and just be, you know, they can really do their best and get, be a better version of themselves. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Well, for people listening, where can they find all the the casts that we just discussed? <laughs> so the uh, Tools for the Toolbox podcast is still up. You can find that on basically anything. It's Tools for the Toolbox. Um, it's on YouTube. It's on uh, Apple. It's on Google. It's You can find it basically anywhere. It's audio and video. It's on Spotify, whatever. Um, I haven't put a... I haven't put out a new Tools for the Toolbox in a little while. I got a few in the hopper, but at the moment, my focus is on the collective. The collective is, uh, you can find that on Instagram. Uh, you can find it, uh, well, the actual podcast itself is only on YouTube. So it, uh, if you search, this is the challenge. The collective is a pretty common name. <laughs> so there's quite a few collectives there. I'm working on the SEOs so that I can get it uh, up to the top, but it's a takes a longer process. But if you look up the underscore collective underscore YT for YouTube, you will find us. And uh, we have, like I said, we've been doing since January 1st. So we're at, I think we're at like 100 and, 130, 140, something like that. However many days we've been in so far this year, <laughs> that's how many we have. And uh, yeah, we have um, all kinds of great people on there. Um, I got, to, I've talked, I've talked to people I never thought I would engage with, which is super cool. Um, not a bad way, just like I never thought I would get to a chance to meet them. One of them, uh, Chris Howder, is one of the original Dirty Dozen, um, who was first, one of the first American, uh, non-Brazilian to get a black belt in BJJ. And so he's, he's one of the, the old school crew. He's a six degree black belt right now. Super cool dude. Great artist. And, uh, still chokes people out on the regular. So like uh, really cool to talk to people like that and just engage with a broader view of society and really talk about stuff that, that matters. One of the neat parts about the show as well is that, like I said earlier, the topics are kind of random and I don't tell anybody beforehand. So we started up and everybody shows up and then I go, okay, well, here's the topic. Let's discuss. So there's no pre-thought or I wanted to really avoid having anybody research stuff and then have to like, you know, try and get a verbatim. I just wanted authentic reactions and authentic conversations so that if you have an experience on this particular thing, cool, let's hear it. If not, sit and listen, right? <laughs> it's all about the conversations. Brilliant. So what about on social media? Where can people find you there? Oh, social media wise. Um, so I am at, Masco Burl, so M C P L B U R L E S. Um, for Instagram, I am on Facebook, uh, Chance Burls and Tools for the Toolbox. Um, the collective for Instagram is the underscore collective underscore IG. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but if you follow me, Masco Burls, uh, I have all the, all of the posts and links from there too as well. So, um, there is the, the collective has a website at uh, the-collective.ca and you can go through that to get to the YouTube. And as, as I figure out how to do merch and stuff, as I get the sales of the, the mugs and stuff sorted out um, on how to actually sell that, that'll be up on the website and there's going to be more 
as we develop. This is the other part of the collective is that it uh, we're being shaped by the collective. So we've done uh, a quarterly after action review and we had uh, you know the audience tell us what they want to hear, what do they want us to do, how do they want us to grow, what directions do you want us to talk about, and then we're going to do another one at the halfway, another one at the three quarter, and one at the end of the year. And then we'll see after 365 <laughs> if if things change, if things grow, if things adjust or adapt, then we'll see what happens then. Beautiful. Well, Chance, I want to say thank you so much. It's it's been an amazing journey. It's so funny how when you, as you said, I don't I don't send people questions. I don't talk about topics. I mean, obviously there are some obvious areas that they know we're going to hit. But, you know, we talk about early ranch life and then now you have full circle where, you know, equine therapy is one of the, the biggest elements of your healing. And then your perspective of some of the lowest points. And I mean, it's just been so much to take away from this conversation. So I want to thank you so much for being vulnerable and courageous today and uh, being so generous with your time. That's It, it truly is my pleasure. I uh, <clears throat> got one more little story for you. Please. <laughs> Before, um, so... I, I had mentioned earlier about a little moment with my granddad um, where I came back from Afghanistan and, you know, he gave me a little nod and I gave him a little nod and we sat down and we started talking about, you know, soldiering a little bit. And all of that weight that I saw come off his shoulders and just the ability to speak to somebody that actually understood. Um, it was in that moment that I, I made a promise to myself to be as absolutely open and truthful about my experiences um, as I possibly could at any moment with anybody that talked to me because I did not want to be that man. <laughs> he suffered in his own head for 70 plus years. And uh, it wasn't until after I found out that he thought he was, he thought he was himself a coward for 70 plus years, even though he volunteered, <laughs> he volunteered to go to war. He signed up, he did the work, he went to Europe, he saw combat he was fixing railroads across uh, Europe and France when, uh, as the push came up, like it was, he did it. He did his job. He did his duty. He's not a coward, but for 70 years, he thought he was just because he didn't talk to anybody else. So I'm going to be as open, as honest as I possibly can so that I'm not that person. And if my example can provide for anybody else to be as open and honest as they can, then uh, they can see healing, they can see growth, they can see a better way forward.